Welcome to our fourth session of, I think, how many we got planned here? 12, 13? 100. 100. We're going to really turn a corner after the week, after the day. We have been um, focused almost exclusively, well, exclusively, really, with the, with the exception of the introduction, on what I call preliminary ecclesiology sort of issues, uh, just sort of first things, preliminary principles in ecclesiology. And, and it's been really great. I've really been very encouraged by you guys and your stamina and your willingness to participate in these conversations. I hope they've been helpful for you to see the, the sort of the behind-the-scenes principles, you know, and it's so important. As I, you know, say this in other contexts, uh, I don't take it for granted anymore that anybody in our tradition knows the first things, uh, the preliminary principles. And, um, and it's so important because before we get into Presbyterianism per se, we need to, we, we needed to talk about what is the nature of the church. And by its nature then, would, what would it mean to practice that nature? So we're turning a corner after today, uh, but today is still uh, much more kind of getting into some nuts and bolts. Um, so, uh, as you know, um, we're looking at biblical church discipline. Um, we're going to start with a, uh, um, a your, your roundtable discussion on Ray. Hopefully you've had a chance to read that. I know it can be a little bit wooden, a little bit defensive. You know, in, in, this, in this day and age, it's not very uh, appealing, but uh, he's still, it's as good a presentation and simple and, and short, as I know, of sort of what is a biblical defense for, you know, for for church discipline, and um, so hopefully you enjoyed that. Kevin's going to lead us in that roundtable conversation, um, and then we're going to step back, and I'm going to pretty much do the confessional thing. So we're going to look at chapter 30. Uh, you might have reviewed that already, and then kind of you know today it's just going to be more me, especially for those who are going to be practicing the eldership. You know, it's going to be just hey, notice this in Boko, notice this in Boko. What, what's a case? What's a this? What's a this? It's getting into the sort of Vernacular of Book of Church Order and um, and some of the processes that we use to try to do justice in our system. So uh, we're going to do that, and then we really kind of turn the corner uh, midway through, or about two thirds through today, and that's the Whitmer read uh, and the Shepherd Elder. And next week we're going to really dive into the whole what is it really you know looking and reading that book, particularly on life on life discipleship and shepherding. And that pertains, of course, to the WLB as much as it pertains to anyone else. Um, All of this does because it's important to know the context. But um, anyway, so that's kind of where we're going. Any questions, everybody? Is it working out all right? You're finding your readings, things like that? All right. So why don't we just start with this, you know, I try to expose you to some classic um, confessions. And this is from the Belgic Confession. And it reads like this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, what we, we when we describe the marks of the church in this church, how many do we got? Do we believe you know, five? Can you name them? Let's try. Come on. Gospel centered. Good. It's a good one to start with. Gospel centered. Missional. Missional. Good. <laughs> She's been studying. I like it. And those are those are two that that historically I've sort of integrated because you can have the other marks and be a very ugly church. Without those two, those are the, what I call the teleological, or eschatological, or purposefulness of everything else that you're about to say. So, what are the other three marks? And now you're getting more to what I call the instrumental marks, the, the means of grace marks. These are the purposeful telos marks. You might want to get going at, huh? 
Sacramental. Sacramental. Confessional. Confessional. And communal. Now, it's interesting on communal, that's really most of what we're taught, we're training you to be right now. Is, is the communal element is the shepherding element. As, as well as the life on life discipleship and, and, and mercy. So several things come under the rubric of, of communalism. Um, but uh, anyway, so this is a nice statement, though, to those three marks that you just mentioned. Uh, the marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, and they use the word punishing in a way that I don't anymore, in modern vernacular, uh, I would you know say disciplining and punishing of sin. In short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, whereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. Um, yesterday, I was talking with uh, John Yeager. I spoke over at the Christian Union. Uh, the Yale community it was a lot of fun, by the way. You ought to just go and sit in the back seat sometime to that through their worship service. It was so invigorating. God, it was so enjoyable just being with those guys to see the kids doing that. But anyway, um, we were talking about this whole issue and, and uh, um, just, just how strange it sounds today to say to speak of the church as an essential element of the gospel. But I can tell you, every creed I know. In some manner, we'll, we'll address that issue, and we'll say, to, you know, of course the RCs have their way of saying it, and the Reformed qualifications have our way of saying it, but the gist of it, you see that last thing. I mean, just to remind you what we started off with, that what you're about to do is you're training to participate in an institution that is not just a, you know, expendable institution. This is not, you know, expendable income, expendable time. These are, you know, we, we think of these three institutions, church, family, state, and there's no, uh, there's a moral obligation, if you will, uh, to serve and to maintain those institutions because they are, in their each distinct way, uh, the presence of God in our, in our world. Um, and so you see that here, don't you? Hereby the true church may certainly be known from which no man has a right to separate himself. Um, so let's pray. Father, I thank you for these devoted disciples of Christ. I thank you for the joy that we have just being together as friends. Uh, and we are friends, uh, even if we're also in koinonia with each other. And we pray that you would maintain the peace and the purity of our fellowship and the fellowship of the Church of Jesus Christ. And with that end, Lord, we pray for these sessions that you'll continue to give us strength and vigor and, and clarity of mind as we... Take seriously the church as an essential element of the gospel as we understand that she is Christ vis-a-vis history. She is the presence, the real and true and mediatorial presence of Christ. And therefore we, we do well to spend a Saturday morning uh, to study her and to understand how we can be your bride and how we can be indeed missional and gospel-centered in the way that we do all this. And so, Father, would you bless us now? Uh, meet with us in this room. And we pray all this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Would you introduce yourselves again and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Cody. I took a Reformed Ecclesiology and Polity class with Press a number of semesters ago, and uh, it really felt like getting a drink out of a fire hydrant. And so I want to try to uh, digest that a little bit more. I've been trying to digest that in sense. Um, 
and so we, I live in upstate New York, and so we drove up uh, to just participate and, and, and be here and learn this stuff. And I really do appreciate you putting this stuff online because I have enjoyed that. Um, so, and, and then, and, uh, my name's Dan Bergeron. I'm friends with Cody, and uh, he just shared with me kind of what's going on here, and uh, I'm eager to learn in any setting, in any place that it's you know, offered, so I appreciate you guys doing this, and I'm glad yeah. you're here to, it's awesome. to learn. <laughs> How can we pray for you guys? I know, Cody, you and I have talked a little bit about the church and things going on up there in Upper State, New York. Uh, any one particular way we can pray for what God's doing up there? Um, a lot of ways it doesn't feel like God is doing anything. <laughs> so that's the prayer. <laughs> okay. um, it's a very spiritually destitute area, mm. and I mm. think that it's one of the places that most needs good churches planted. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I hope to involve mm-hmm. mm-hmm. when I'm finishing you know, seminary. I have three classes left, mm-hmm. and it's going to be hard to get those three classes in financially. Um, so finance. For you personally and the Church of Jesus Christ in Upper State New York. Yeah. Church planning. Thank you. Anything else? Yeah, same, same in my head. Yeah. Go call them, call the, all my own business and God's calling me out of that into ministry. Mm-hmm. And I'll pray for direction and where I can best use my okay. skills to honor Him. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be praying for that. Yes. Just a question. What is upstate New York to you? I mean, what um, I live in a town called Oneonta, which is about 20 minutes away from Cooperstown. It's right in oh, between. Okay. All right, I think everybody else has been with us now. Um, so we'll be praying for that, and uh, thank you, though. Yeah, we'll have to be talking some more about upstate New York as well. All righty. All right, everybody get a handout. We are um, going to talk about church discipline. Preston um, really had to think through the whole church to figure out who was the right man to teach about discipline. Who, who would be the most harsh, uh, strict, punishing, was the word? Was punishment? Uh-huh. Yeah, how do you know it wasn't the most essential? <laughs> Look at rolling up his sleeves. Rolling up his sleeves. Yeah, because I'm planted right under a heater. Um, I do believe in, in church discipline. I believe in it um, as much as I believe in, uh, in preaching of the gospel. And I think those two things are very tied. And I, I think that um, the neglect of it is a very scary thing. Um, on an individual level and on a whole church-wide level. And so um, however much it has um, has a scary element to it, um, and I think we all know the, that um, without it, it's even scarier. Um, so I, I do want to um, commend us to think about this topic in a, in a very um, serious way, but, um, but to realize the importance of it. Uh, I want to start out with maybe more of a provocative question, but um, does the church determine an individual's salvation? No fair. No. Why? Well, ultimately, it's 
salvation. But yet, the church does, you know, does you know, have the power to bind and loose. So that would be the under, yes. Okay. Okay. What does that mean? You didn't want to. I don't want to be bad to But I mean, I, I, I think no is the stronger. And yes, it was <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Anybody else want to weigh in? Yeah. Well, the the church is part of the process that God uses to communicate um, to 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 people uh, to uh, bring new life, regeneration into the people that He has chosen. Okay. So, in that sense. Uh, the church is is part of that determination. Okay, so that's aiding in the determination, but not determining. Right. Okay, if I could parse that one. Right. Yeah, Cody? Uh, Cyprian talked about how that no one can claim God as father without having the church as mother. And I think that, you know, being part of the church is so necessary that you can't you can't know God or Christ apart from the community of the believers, and so it is determinative of your salvation in that way. That if you're not joined to Christ's body, you can't be joined to Christ as head. Okay. All right. Cyprian. Do we like Cyprian? <laughs> you know, who is Cyprian? Does it help you if Calvin quotes that? Um, <clears throat> Yeah. So I, I hope that all of you feel awkward about that question. I hope all of you wrestle with it and want to say, uh, you know, because I think we need to be really, really careful, uh, specifically on does the church determine it, um, because um, we, we, part of what we're talking about with church discipline um, in, both, in both aspects of it um, has a lot of unpacking to do. So let's let's just get into this discussion, um, but but keep that keep that question in your mind as we as we work through it and as Ray uh, works through it. I want to look at um, some of the catechism and um, and confession questions that um, Ray put at the bottom in his little pamphlet. Um, he's got this in the appendix. I don't know if you, you looked at these, but. Uh, if you does everybody y'all got this? I got a couple extra copies. I had the perfect amount, and then I thought, well, there has to be more people coming, so I made more. But now nobody else is coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Heidelberg Catechism, question eighty-three: What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Now we started this discussion uh, for those of you who aren't here uh, several weeks back, talking about the keys of the kingdom. We talked about the authority. We, we, we went to Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Um, and Ray includes that, just as Heidelberg includes that discussion. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and, and, church, and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. Similarly, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30 to these officers, the, king, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have power, respectively, to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, 
both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel, and by absolution from censures, as all as occasion shall require. <laughs> How do these these two sound to that question about determining salvation? <coughs> Interesting, isn't it? Um, note that both of these creeds show a link between the ministry of the gospel to save and the ministry of discipline to exclude. In other words, church government oversees the admitting and removing. Um, sometimes we neglect the admitting part or we forget about the admitting part. Um, as well as governing its members. So church discipline, the keys, the binding and loosening involves all those aspects. Now this is probably in contrast to the spirit of Christianity that many of you have been exposed to. Modern evangelicalism stresses personal individual responsibility for salvation it's a matter of the heart not externals what effect does that type of spirituality have on the role of the church in a believer's life if you say that salvation is completely a matter of the heart a little louder they're not hearing you in the back okay becomes much Smaller what does it become? There. What does it become? It becomes more of a social scene, uh, just a like-minded group of people that you enjoy being with, and maybe you can learn something. Okay. But it doesn't affect your status. Okay. As much at all. I mean, you, you may hear this. Why go to church? Why go to church? Well, God commands it. Great reason. Go, because God commands it in His Word. But other than that, difficult. You know, you can think of practical reasons. Not much of what Cyprian said, but practical reasons. Um, the Bible holds a radically different picture. Matthew eighteen eighteen, Verily I say unto you, whoso, uh, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven just as the good old King James says in the Greek. Uh, Thank you, somebody. Uh, Ray properly qualifies this. Of course, the ratification in heaven of what the church does on earth is contingent upon the church doing what? Acting in obedience to Christ and his principles without hypocrisy or favoritism. Why is that an important qualification? What happens if that's not true? Doesn't work. Doesn't work right. But I mean, what's it really saying about the church's authority? It's, it's derivative. It's derivative. Good. It's not on its own. I can't walk down the street. And I, you know, sometimes joke when I got ordained. I say, I can walk down the street, see a guy and a girl, say, "Well, by the power vested in me, you now are man and wife." Ha ha. You know, it's the power vested in me, so you now are 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 married. No, we don't have power beyond. We can't do declarative power beyond God's word. And I can't give, I can't proclaim to you and declare to you things in your life that are from God that aren't in accordance with his word. We talked about this in previous weeks, but very, very important. And so we can't say things about salvation that aren't in accord with God's word. But 
What benefit does a church-centric view of salvation have on a believer's life? In the positive, when we can give firm declarations, what's the benefit of it? Assurance. Yeah, yeah, confidence. Think about that. Think, think about how that works in a believer's life. I mean, how? What, what, is it, what does it look like when that's there? How, did, how have you experienced it? Confidence, knowing that you, you're not going to lose what you have. Yeah. And, yeah, and maybe just to help prime the pump a little bit, think about it without that, um, when it's just individual and just a matter of the heart. If you've been in other traditions that rebaptize or baptize you only as a believer, how many times have people gone up and gone forward in confession? Why? Why do they do that? Because there's no confidence in, in their own. They're, they're constantly admitting or excommunicating themselves. If it's purely a matter of your heart or your will, then you can change your heart or your will and no longer be saved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that you're the, own, you're the whole barometer of that. You, you're the only one that can can give determination to that. It just seems like you can delude yourself. I mean, you know, I mean, if you rely upon yourself, that's a very good foundation. Right. You know, and and not only that, but um, you're you're making yourself the key to interpreting scripture, and and uh, leaving yourself the, the the key to understanding how that should work in, into your own life. Very scary place to be. But more than just helpful, the church's role of binding and loosing is part of the church's purpose for her. Can you pass this hand up back to Chris? Um, It is our duty, Ray notes um, at the very bottom there, let us not think that it is simply an optional power to act, for all of the Lord's instructions are given in the imperative. The church does not have the right to ignore persistent sinful behavior among its members. Our Lord has not left that option open to us. However much it's difficult, and however much, you know, it's, it's not just a matter of, oh, it's practical, it's nice when we can get it, it's a nice added advantage to help assure people, um, but it's actually part of the duty of what Christ calls us to do. And to ignore it would be our own, um, our own sin as a church. The church declaration of admission or exclusion is not, however, the same as God's judgment. Getting back to that original question, I want to make sure that that's clear. The church does not determine judgment, but only pronounces the judgment of Christ upon a person who insists on bearing his own guilt. Does that that sentence make sense to you all? Church does not determine judgment, but only pronounces the judgment of Christ upon a person who insists on bearing his own guilt. So, again, it's derivative from the word of God. We can pronounce the judgment as best we can understand it. But even excommunication, that's why excommunication is never final. It is never shutting the door. In fact, as you've read, one of the uh, hopeful uh, means of excommunication is restoration. There's other means, but, but that's one of them. Is to is to restore. You hope that, um, as Paul talks about uh, in First is it First Corinthians, he says, you know, 
cast the, this person away, give him, hand him over to Satan. Why? So that hopefully he can come back. He can be so grieved by this loss and this disconnection that he will return. Um, Ray, I think um, another reason why this is not determinative is because we ultimately cannot know the heart. Um, and I think this is a, a good quote by Ray here. He says, we should not easily allow ourselves to doubt another's repentance. He's saying this in context of someone coming back and repenting over uh, in, in church discipline. And you might be saying, as, as uh, cynical as some of us can be, um, well, that person really didn't repent. I mean, look at the sin that they did, you know, and I know that they're saying they're repenting, but, um, how, you know, let's just keep them, let's keep the discipline here. Um, Ray doesn't think we should play that game, and I think he's, I think he's right. We should not easily allow ourselves to doubt another's repentance unless we have compelling reasons for such doubt. We are not to be judges of hearts, but only behavior. On the other hand, we are not obliged to accept every claim of repentance without question. So it's not just a simple, you know, this person says they're sorry, but there is a sense in which we cannot press more than that. Yeah. Over the years, you know, of course, admitting people to uh, community membership and, um, and in some cases, discipline cases. Um, I, I think this, I, I just hope you all underline that, especially those who will be in, in, in uh, you know, elders at some point. That um, I mean, there have been many instances, many, where I had I had significant doubts about the sincerity or the uh, the. Uh, I guess sometimes more that I'm concerned for naivete. Um, and yet, this passage really nicely outlines the tension that I think every elder has to, to maintain. That on the one hand, yeah, we do need to ask questions. That there needs to be, you know, the heart can be more deceiving, as, Paul, as David says. You know, so you ask the questions, you try to do your due diligence, but at the same time, the church, it's not in the church's business to sit down and second guess someone's confession. Yeah. So at the end of the day, a child comes up or someone comes yeah. up for admission, we'll do our best. But there's been many instances, really, where I can think of where I said, you know, I'm not, you know, something in me tells me this person's uh, on an emotional roller coaster or in some kind of a state or some kind of a naive situation. And I do everything I can do to, to counsel, disciple, and pastor. But, but this is important because, yes. again, it goes back to two weeks ago or one week ago, the whole... Uh, Regulation of church power. Yep. You know, we all we have to go on is what does the word, a clear understanding of what the scriptures require for community membership, which we believe is second faith. And and then on the other hand, do as best we can to help a person understand themselves and what they're what what's going on, what faith is, etc. And um, but it just this is just so well said. I can't emphasize. I mean, that says it about as perfectly as I've ever seen it said. Attention that, that you will feel existentially sitting in a court making judgments. It's that is it. Yeah. And and I think it's got to maintain it. Yep. You can't get around second guessing people's confessions. Yep. Craig, could you pass this down? Um, and I think it backs up this sense that our our role in pronouncing something that's that's Christ's decision is not the same as passing judgment. Although we're doing our, you know, we have to do our due diligence and do our best to be able to do that. 
So another reason why I think it's, it's wise to, to counsel um, kids to, to wait in, in, um, in coming to become communicant members. It doesn't say anything that's wrong about their, their status as a non-communicant member, that we believe that they're, we have no, no reason to doubt that they're Christians as they are in the church. Um, but there's a sense in which what they're going to articulate is very hard to discern. Is this a credible profession of faith, which is what our Book of Church Order and our, our tradition says is what we should determine, a good reason from Scripture and why we should make that, um, do our best to, uh, to make sure that we have done our due diligence. Is that all clear? Uh, by Scripture alone, I just put this in there in case it wasn't clear. I hope we've emphasized it enough. The church applies the same criteria in admitting members as it does disciplining or removing while the church is commanded to discipline, it must restrict its discipline only to the authority given it. It is a spiritual authority alone governed by Scripture. Um, now, while that, I hope, gives a real good um, reinforcement of the idea that we are limited in our church um, authority and power, we cannot go beyond Scripture, it should also encourage us to say, if scripture does call something a sin, then that is a sin. We not, we're not free to, um, to wink at certain, certain sins um, by, our own, by our own judgment. And I think it's important to be able to say, you know, this is, this is sin, it needs, it needs some discipline. Now, remember, there's levels of that, and there's, there's timing, uh, as Ray, I think, helpfully talks about. But as he writes here, all breaches of the biblical standard of doctrine and behavior require some form of discipline. It also makes it very, very important that we know what is a uh, element that Scripture is commanding <laughs> and what is, what is not, what is, what is something that um, we can have Christian liberty about. Um, I think that's, you know, make sure we know what is what we as a church will say is a sin coming from Scripture that we can we can determine it. Um, and finally, I want to I want to talk about uh, gospel discipline because I think this is really essential in understanding it. What keeps church discipline from turning salvation into legalism? Since all transgressions are subject to discipline, it may appear that we get in by salvation by grace, but we have to maintain or stay in by our obedience. Is that true? Get in by grace, but then once you're a church member, well, we can excommunicate you if you start sinning. <laughs> Why not? Why? <laughs> Just think, think what you did yesterday. You know it. What did you do? <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> now you know. Uh, I mean, there's a process of sanctification. Yes. It's involved. Right. Right. But you know, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to say here that does this idea of church discipline, being that it does have these pronouncements from Christ's judgment. It could sound like, and anytime we talk about discipline and a church active in discipline, rather than just saying, "God just welcomes you," you're you're in it for the gospel, and you stay in because of the gospel. Um, that might 
encourage you to say, well, why even do discipline? And then if you say, well, you're going to do discipline, Christ commands it. You say, oh, whoa, okay, so now I got saved by grace, but if I don't keep in line, they're going to kick me out of this church and tell me that I'm apart from Christ as best they can judge. And that tension starts rising again. The gospel um, not only saves, but it's also the proper and only response to discipline. I think this is really important. As we think about what discipline is, it is not calling a person to conform again to some level of sanctification. It's calling somebody to come back to that gospel. You get that? Because one cannot respond to discipline by simply stopping the sin or by outdoing a bad with a good. Oh, you caught me in adultery. Uh, if I'm extra faithful or if I donate something to an orphanage or I you know, balance it out or I, I just you know, stop doing it, that's not the response. That's the response of legalism. Yes, that's part of repentance. But um, repentance is the only response to discipline. Ray writes, therefore, regardless of what the offender's sin might be, it is ultimately his impenitence that must exclude him from the church. So a person, one could be disciplined for, say, lying, and remain, however minor a sin you think that might be, um, they could remain impenitent all the way through, through multiple levels, and ultimately maybe be excommunicated by their stubbornness from it. While on the other hand, another member could be disciplined for murder and repent and be restored. And some of us feel like, uh, is that right? But the severity of the offense is not the point. And the response to it is not a legalistic response. It all, to make it, the point, undermines the gospel if, it, if, the, if the severity of the offense is, is the point. All sin is worthy of condemnation. Only godly repentance and faith is the response. Um, So discipline is not a call for you to come back and conform without any type of repentance. It must go through repentance. The gospel is at every stage. And the gospel is the only proper response. The gospel includes conformity, but, um, but the gospel is the response to discipline. And that's why it's not getting in by the gospel, getting in by grace, and then just staying in by works. It's the gospel every sense. Every sense. Okay, so I, I just wanted to frame that as the church's responsibility is a gospel-centered responsibility to, to discipline in the church. I put here four questions, and you might say, wait, that's not fair. Number four looks like it has ten parts. Um, no, that, that's just, you're, you're going to just choose two of those in your discussion groups. And uh, ones you find the most uh, common, and why do you think they're so compelling? But take a few minutes um, to discuss these questions in your groups, and then um, we'll wrap up in about 15 minutes, okay? And realize you're going to have such a fun time talking about discipline. We're only halfway through. We're like, are we? It's really good. I don't know. Uh, Time limit? You're at the the beginning of a morning. I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not in charge of the rest, so. It's really good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm 
committed them. <laughs> All right. Do, do you want, uh, Preston, you, you, you know the time better than I. Do you want me to extend a little bit? Stick to whatever we talk about. Stick to it. All right. Um, Sometimes discipline's harsh. <laughs> Question. Uh, why does why does uh, Ray rank the glory of God as the purpose of church discipline? Why does that deserve top priority? Aside from the fact that it's our whole purpose for being <laughs> and our chief end. <laughs> what does it look like when it's missing? What does discipline look like when it's missing? Harsh. Harsh. Okay. Harsh. <laughs> Sometimes unfair. Okay. And, and I, I want you to say, but I would say that frequently it is falsely loving, okay, too. Right, yes. I mean, you think about it, when you you neglect God's glory, you kind of say, well, let it slide. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was, um, you know, one of the reasons why the EPC uh, denomination started was over this um, case, I don't want to go into the whole thing, but they were admitting somebody, to be a minister of the gospel in their, this isn't the, in, into the originating church, I'll just leave churches out of it, um, who they were allowing him to still be a minister in good standing even though he denied the gospel. I mean, no, sorry, not denied the gospel, denied Christ's deity, deity of Christ, denied the deity of Christ. <laughs> yeah. Also, if, if, if the glory of God isn't the uh, centerpiece, uh, something's going to replace it. Mm-hmm. Yep. The church polity could be right. politics. It could be preferences. Yep. It could be... Um, we, could be size. Like that. It could be social. It could be demographic. Yeah. So if, if the glory of God is not... And then we could also put in there a certain doctrine that we like. Yeah. Too. yeah. So very the glory good. of God yeah. becomes very... It's almost a self-church... Yeah, and and with and sometimes with good motives. Well, isn't it great if we had a bigger church? We can reach more people for the gospel, more people in heaven. Well, we start not becoming the church when the Lord of God's missing. Ray lists three modes of discipline: admonition, rebuke, and excommunication. As a key elder, as an elder or key leader, how would you encourage the first two in the congregation? How would you encourage people to be uh, to practice admonition and rebuke? How, how do you get that to be part of your a healthy church? Well, I think if you're care, teaching the love of Christ, if you're caring enough about people, to care enough to want them to know the truth. Yeah. Our group talked about that. If you're, there's a sense of needing to be intimately involved with people's yes. lives in yeah. order for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we also uh, included the, the natural... Participation in worship, where you have the preaching of the word, and you even have uh, confession and absolution. There is a sense of those two elements taking place naturally within people's lives in the, in the course of the church. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But if a church doesn't, if the members don't know each other, or if they don't ever spend time with each other, and and are not also using that time godly. You know, uh, with some word in it. That's why you know I always fight when we have prayer groups to even let's have some word in there in some way because you have to qualify your prayer time, or else you just start getting really bent in on yourself and, and narcissistic. Or um, all right, so uh, real quickly, I know we're running out of time on my section. Is there uh, any area of life in church in a church member that is not subject to discipline? 
<laughs> okay, all right, good. <laughs> the answer is their bank account. You cannot ask about how people spend their money. No, I'm just kidding. You can ask. Yeah, it's their sex life you can't ask about. No. Uh, I would say, just think about it. Like, scripture has to be your guide. What scripture calls a sin. Um, but you can't get into areas of, and discipline of areas that are not something that scripture gives you guidance. So you can't tell a person without good reason, that from good and necessary inference from scripture, that you shouldn't take this job or you shouldn't marry this person or something like that. Um, okay, so I'll, I guess nobody got to question number four. I'll leave that for homework. Um, all right, thank you all. Um, peace be upon you. I don't know. Um, Preston. Yeah, think about what what do you find most common? Where have you where have you run into these? And um, which objection? Okay, judging. That's kind of free as well, though. Yeah, yeah, free. There to get there. Yeah, so, yeah. If you sin, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all sinners. How can we condemn them? Are we judging them? Well, not if we've done it correctly. Based on what we t- what we heard about, what are we what are we saying? Are we judging them? Only God is judging. Okay, yeah, but what are we what are we doing? We're pronouncing God's. We're pronouncing what we see in, yeah. as best as we can see, and we do not judge the heart. But as best we can see, we're pronouncing what God's word says is true. So, are we judging them? Yes, we're <laughs> judging them. I like, yeah. I like what I think Ray said was they're judging themselves. Yeah, yeah. They're, that guilt upon themselves. They've chosen that. Well, they brought judgment upon themselves. I'd probably qualify that. I yeah. would say. This is an example where I hope we're being trained to be a little more nuanced. <coughs> yes, the no, you could say. Mm-hmm. But let's be nuanced with that. We are mediating, or we are declaring, you know, the judgment of Christ upon them, right? So we, we become an authorized interpretation of Christ's word, wherein Christ judges them. Now that's one that's one caveat. But I would there's another caveat that's very important. Are we ju- is, is our judgment What's the nature of our judgment? Maybe? Is it a sanctifying judgment or is it a justifying judgment? Well, it depends on the censure. It depends on the censure. I mean, only as communication is a justifying judgment. In other words, we are declaring, we, we declare on behalf of Christ that you're outside of justification, outside of the kingdom of God. Hoping and praying that that will lead you to repent, to give us evidence to declare that you are inside God's justification for <coughs> So be careful. Yeah, we make judgments, but they're not necessarily judgments that are to the effect of judging you to be outside the kingdom of God. All the other censures are warnings. And even explication is a warning in some sense, but it's... But so we just have to be nuanced. This yep. is the thing that's so frustrating in, in our little soundbite world is we get out there, we throw these little things, oh, you're just judging people. Well, come on, there, there needs to be a paragraph after that. Yep. And we don't have a lot of patience for paragraphs. Yep. But I, I hope that as we've talked about this being 
this this role of, of church discipline being a command by Christ to us as a church, and that Scripture is our basis for this, that it emboldens you to practice this. And as you're called into leader leadership, I think you practice it as a member with you know calling for admonition and rebuke as it's in love and in your situations, one on one, as as Matthew 18 uh, talks about. But I really hope it. It gives you boldness to do this because it's, it is good, healthy shepherding. And it's it's unloving to let a sheep head towards a cliff and and be into, into danger. Um, remember, other objections that everybody thought were pretty common? I, I personally, on my end of it, feel the uh, number four. Um, you know, yeah. You know, there's a kind of... Uh, <laughs> Open Scarlet letter being put on your chest in some. I would love it if in this church 
Mennonite Church. Somewhere, somehow, the mountains are so clear as part of the DNA of how we do ministry that they would say when the elder walks in the door or when the pastor walks in the door, they say, oh, I feel more safe now than because I know that we know the gospel, you know, and that I know these people do process the gospel the way that they counsel, the way that they do things. And and so it's, yeah, we just got to pray for this because that's an overwhelming bias against discipline out there. Shouldn't there be an element of discernment that's in here, though, at the right time? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you mean in terms of when they would divulge things or when the pastor would deal with things? No, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if, if people were, if you're talking about some social gathering or something, yeah, right. yeah the pastor would, would, I think, make a mistake. Yeah, we'll we talk about that sometime, that's about all right. We put it in our weekly email, but other than that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, but I'm thinking that sometimes when people are growing in the Lord, I have to get them to read it. Becoming uh, aware of what's going on in your life. And that may not be, we may be confirmation to, to what they're seeing, but it may not be the time of correction. It may be the time of channeling. Well, they are, yeah. Well, we're, we're gonna. I think you're getting into something we're gonna talk about a little bit later about. No, that's good. I think yeah. you're right. They're different. With a minute, I think you're getting an issue. There are many different. When we say the word discipline, I think most of us think immediately correction, reproof. Right. But there's many stages before that. Right. And you're kind of getting into that. Thank you all. Uh, and actually, probably the last word on this. Not just. Uh, I hope that you have the boldness to. Um, exercise discipline in others, but I hope you have the desire for it in your own life. Um, I know that I do. Deep down, you know, there's a lot of things I want to hide and be afraid of, but um, for me to be a healthy Christian, I want people asking the tough questions. I want it to be exposed, because when it's exposed, it dies. And, um, and uh, you know, that's, that's a heart that I think is understanding. That, that, that's the type of heart that, that I want to have is someone that understands the gospel is healing. Talk about it. It's always this sort of, it's in the category of, uh, yeah, well, I don't like to talk about that stuff. That's not the fun stuff. And I just beg to differ. You know, this stuff is, is taking seriously the church as the mediatorial presence of Christ. And when you put it that way, it's a pretty important topic to understand Christ and understand how he cares for his flock. And, um, and it does make a huge difference. Uh, it does make a huge difference. I can't, I mean, I know it's hard probably. I hope you're beginning to see it now. But so much of what makes a church a good church, so much of what makes a church healthy, people who will say things and go, wow, I see this, I see that. You know, the discerning mind who understands something is going to say, oh, I see where that's going now. I see why that was important. Where did that come from? You know, and it didn't just come from nowhere. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of a, you know, trickle down here in the sense of what got, you know from God's word. I mean, and and um, so I hope you're. In, it's encouraging to me that we are. There's a small group of people here in the world that are actually sitting down and actually taking seriously that Jesus has not left us. He's present, and if he is, let's 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 understand how he's present and how we how what we should expect from him and how do we become. Quinonia with Christ and sharing in the shepherding relationship that Christ has with his church as under shepherds. And that's, so you just got I just keep reminding us what we're doing here kind of thing. Because uh, I do think we live in a world that really has got a very bad attitude about 
all of this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. authority. authority, polity, your church, even organization. So, yeah, this is stuff. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, that's organization. You've heard me say, and I've said it often, when people say, oh, I'm, I'm not into the, you know, organized religion stuff. I, you know, I always come back with, you know, the pro- my, my, I have a very different, I don't think we're organized enough. Um, the fact of the matter is, um, I mean, everything we've been doing in this course is what we call organization. That's it's developing in a polity, an organization, and um, and the reason why I think the church has suffered so deeply, and, and it's and in, in, in many ways, is because it never took itself seriously enough. I mean, if you're not going to take yourself seriously, why are you expecting it's going to be a, a, a great success? So, anyway, just be encouraged that your time is not being wasted on this otherwise gorgeous day. Um, I am actually hopeful. Well, I don't want to say this, but but you know, I'm, I'm not into keeping you just for the sake of keeping the time. So, um, a lot of what we're about to do in my section, and then we're going to conclude with one more book discussion that really turns the corner, um, is. I want to phrase it this way, not to demote you, but um, I'm a little embarrassed. This doesn't require quite the intellectual vigor and quite the thoughtfulness that I put into other conversations like this. Um, what my goal is, that doesn't diminish it, but um, in other words, I don't think you're going to find this segment as mind-bending as our previous segments. Um, And here's why, though, and it's intentional. What my goal is for here is more or less to connect the theory that we've been talking about to our particular confession and book of church order. And so really what I'm going to be doing is is saying, okay, we've been doing a lot of, of this, and it's been confessional, I know, but but let's try to locate now some of the what we call polity issues. You know, what are some of the specific procedures and, you know, terminology so that you're equipped to, to actually perform as a shepherd in a context of a particular denomination in a particular church. So, So most of what we've talked about up to this point, you could really say... Well, I would hope that you would say it for any church of Jesus Christ, um, but at the very least, any Reformed church, for the most part, if it knows itself, which, again, is a big if, and I sadly say that. Um, today, again, what I want to do is just now let's talk about our particular confession, uh, uh, particularly chapter 30, and then our particular book of church order, particularly part two in our book of church order, where it deals with issues of discipline. So that's where we're going, and um, hopefully that helps you know what to expect a little bit. So with that, let's turn then to page one of the uh, session four, Biblical Church Discipline. We've done part one already. We're now part two. And again, a little bit repetitive, so I'm not going to spend time, but one more qualification. So I ask that you be very diligent and proactive at stopping me, because I may literally just start saying, hey, notice this, notice this. And when you want to say, I noticed it, but hold it, I need to, you know, let's talk about it. Let's do it. That's what I want you to do, okay? So let's start off with uh, Westminster Confession um, of Faith. Chapter 30, it begins with the Lord Jesus as king and head of the church, has therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrate. Um, uh, there are just a couple of points there. We've talked about this thesis now already quite a, quite a bit. We've had two full sessions on it already, more or less. Um, I just I can't emphasize enough how important it is that as distinct from... That was a major issue in the Scottish Reformation, and it's a major issue in America today. 
even if America doesn't have a king, um, we do have a sovereign audience. Uh, we have a democratic, you know, populist-oriented government, and therefore you can almost read that distinct from popular culture, and it's and the institutions that come out of that popular that populism. Yeah, he is. He we still have a state. Don't get me wrong, but um, how that state does its work tends to be by populism. Um, if you don't believe that, good gosh, just watch the political process. Um, you know, it's a populist-driven government. Um, unfortunately, more so now than it was intended, in my humble opinion. The federalism aspects have gotten lost a little bit and everything else. But, so, but I'm not here to do commentary on America. So just notice that. It's important. Um, we do, and we've already talked about the distinctions between church and state, the different ways that the church relates to God versus the state relates to God. That was all, I believe, last week or last session. So I'm going to just assume you know the whole study behind that. Um, and then, so I'm going to start with some questions then. So now the assembly employs biblical language, notice Matthew 16, in discussing keys of the kingdom and defining them as related to church censures. Um, someone read 32. These officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, are committed by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut the kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censors, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by the absolution of censors as occasion shall require. So, we've talked already about Matthew 16. I do put another little, uh, you know, some, some material there that, that you can look at it if you'd like. Um, but I'm particularly interested now to get beyond the idea that Christ on earth, mediated by means of the church, and the opening and the shutting of the kingdom of God, visible, the kingdom of God, the kingdom where we remember we said in the first session that the church is the epicenter of that kingdom. Um, and so uh, certainly this has to do with the, the whole, if you think of the keys, at the very least, it is the retaining and the remitting of sins. That is what? Uh, bringing them under the, the authority of God. Uh, bringing people under the authority of God or loosing them from the authority of God. And so um, uh, and so you see that language there, but I'm particularly wanting to hone in on this idea of censures. And we're going to try to get into that. Uh, what are the censures? How does the censures relate to the keys? And so keep note of that. So turn the page. And why don't we just, though... Uh, as a good sort of segue from your previous uh, discussion, so would someone read that quote from Daniel Ray? It is in this context that he gave the church the responsibility to pronounce his forgiveness and his judgments. Of course, the ratification in heaven of what the church does on earth is contingent upon the church acting in obedience to Christ and his principles without hypocrisy or favoritism. As Matthew Poole puts it, this is this text is to assure stubborn and impenitent sinners that he would ratify what he what the church did according to the rule he had given them to act by. It is therefore a terrible text to those who are justly and duly cut off from the communion of the church. 
The church is not by this text made infallible, nor is the holy God by it engaged to defend their errors. The only fact to be established at this point, however, is simply that the Lord Jesus Christ does indeed intend his church to govern its members, even to the extent of disciplinary measures when these become necessary. Let us not think that this is simply an optional power to act, for all of the Lord's instructions are given in the imperative. The church does not have the right to ignore persistent, simple behavior among its members. The Lord has not left that option open to us. Is there an immediate... um... What are you thinking about as you read this? Uh, and I really mean it that way. Just what, are you, what were you thinking about? It'll be interesting from the various contexts that you read it. Yeah. Um, I, I kept on thinking uh, as this was being read that um, if we put someone into a different deal with somebody, they, today they have just the option to go to another church. Mm-hmm. When this was written, well, not when this was written, when, when the catechisms all came out, and that especially mm-hmm. even the reference there to the Scottish Reformation, there, there was a sense that there was a real fear and trembling to be cut off from the church. Mm-hmm. There's not that fear and trembling. Land rights and all kinds so, of things. So I, I was baptism. That, it, that if I were to deal with somebody, or the, the, the session here, because I'm thinking of the Hill, uh, were to deal with something in, in, in the Hill Church, mm-hmm. they, they would just... They would just say fine. And they could. It really is. It does create quite a. Uh, the, and, and, and to be honest, there's something good about that. I know it's, there's something exhausting about it, but the good part of it is the church can't do it, can't have lazy discipleship of by men, women who are removed from the congregation where there hasn't formed trust, where there hasn't formed relationships, where there hasn't trust. You know, in other words. You know, it's interesting because my as I'm reading this, I'm getting exhausted. I'm thinking, you know, how many elders do we need to where they know the flock of God well enough to do this? Um, how many WLB members, you know, shepherd helping and assisting the elders and the shepherding the flock, especially the women, do we need? Because this is a time intense. I mean, I'm just sitting here going, man, you know, this is time intensive. This is. People intensive, um, um, and it also, like I said, I can't rely on on temporal outward means to coerce obedience. There has to be, and again, I I I, uh, I, I buy into that. I, I affirm that. That means the only power the church has is the power of the of the moral consciousness, and we have to appeal to that. And I think that's exactly the burden that the church should have to, to bear. Um, I think it would be too simple if we had the sword and the purse and land rights and all of that stuff. Um, we wouldn't, you would be, if you were the congregate, you would be resistant. You know, the irony is, is when the church has had the power of the sword, its power to affect a person's conscience is, is exponentially limited. I mean, a person... Is not their conscience is not open to being discipled and and, and changed and de- developed when there's fear of of 
outward ramifications. I'm not even open to this. I'm just I'm going through it in the in the outward sense. You can see why the Puritans had such a hard time and why the revivals were such a part of their program, if you will, because these are people walking through a door, and if they don't, they're going to literally lose rights to provide for their family. And man, you're walking through the door. And when you walk through the door under those compulsion, uh, under compulsion, when you give money under compulsion, you're not giving it cheerfully. You're not giving it with your heart. Your heart is closed. So it's a very important inverse relationship to the degree that the church is Christendom. And I use that word in the classic sense. It's the degree I think that the church loses its moral authority. And, and again, de Tocqueville is a great, great case study of 19th century America from, a, from his perspective when he wrote about the democracy in America. And, um, and so I think that's just something to, to remember. Yeah, so that, any other comment? Uh, but yeah, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Go ahead first, and then you. I think it's um, the responsibility of the church to take this authority for the glory of God. And even if people skip out and go to another church, they're still in the wilderness. Yeah. Who is the church when you said the church? What do you mean by it's the church's responsibility? Define church for me. Well, I'm thinking of this particular church mm-hmm. as we see sins in the mm-hmm. congregation, if we ignore them, yeah. or if in a political sense we say, well, yeah. if you're doing it, it's okay. All of that destroys... Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. My point was just a little bit of a, of a yeah. I agree. Um, thank you. Uh, the church is you and me. It's your elders. It's your non-elders. It's your shepherds. It's your non-shepherds. There is a culture in the church. No doubt about it. It's responsibility, and it starts with the pastors to teach the con- and instruct the congregation on the stuff you're learning here. But if the congregation is duly instructed, uh, hopefully the congregation wants it makes it either more or less difficult for the church to do it. Um, it's a very important thing. And, and, and the church is very part, much part of that. I mean, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, there's a passage in Hebrews, let them do this with joy, those who exercise authority, you know, for that is good for your soul. And so, you know, it's, this is, it's easy to talk about the church and the abstract, but the church is you and me. It's what do we do when we see, uh, are we willing ourselves Remember, we're going to start talking about discipline in a minute, and this process is a discipline, and it starts with, it, the discipline of the church starts with individual members to other individual members. One-on-one, remember, at Matthew 18, go to them in private. It starts there. If phase one and phase two haven't happened, and what you mean by the church is, well, I'm expecting the elders to do all this, well, it, it's not going to work well, very well. That's why we emphasize life-on-life discipleship, small group ministries, one-on-one. I mean, there's a, it's very important. So this is a great little thing. But the church, remember, this is talking to every member. Every member who, who believes in the mediatorial presence of Christ and wants to participate in that in the way that they've been called, whether as an individual member or as one who holds to an office or both. And so we'll remember that. Yeah. When, when I read this, I see a balance of intention. Mm between authority and responsibility and at each and every every level. And we are so prone to be, I'm in the we, uh, to accept the mantle of authority without the responsibility. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. exactly. 
Good. And, and the thing where this is practiced at every level, yeah. within, within the church, that responsibility has got to be understood. Yeah. Uh, I've got a lot of people that are uh, very good at admonishing me for all sorts of all sorts of things uh, where there's no res- where there's no responsibility. I didn't say any names. I didn't. Y'all are great. Y'all are no. just great. I love y'all. Y'all, y'all taking yourselves too seriously. You do this quite often. You're but, a good example for us. But I see that in 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 what he's he's yeah, saying. That's good. Uh, that's a good point. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's keep going then, because um, we're obviously going to get tighter and tighter here. So just notice a couple of other contexts for defining keys and whatnot. Um, the Heidelberg says it this way, what is the office of the keys? The preaching. So where does discipline begin? I mean, we're talking about keys now, right? We're talking about the power of authority, and we often forget it starts with teaching preaching. It starts with instruction. And so it's the preaching of the Holy Gospel. I love it's the Gospel. You know, we read these words and we just, again, we we just kind of catch phrase for everything the church talks about. No, if you go back, when they talk about the Gospel in Heidelberg, they mean what we mean when we say Gospel-centered. I mean, really, the Gospel. True. It's got to start with grace and the Gospel of justification by grace through faith alone and how that Faith restores us to the law and enables us to be more and more sanctified day by day. It's the whole deal, you know, and our future for heaven. So, yeah, that's all got to be part of this. And then and church discipline, by which two things, the kingdom of heaven, is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. And then Heidelberg, uh, about 18. How is then the kingdom of heaven shut and open by church discipline? Would someone read that? In this way, that according to the command of Christ, if an under the Christian name show themselves unsound either in doctrine or life, and offer, and offer repeated brotherly admonition, refuse to turn from their error or evil ways, they are complained of to the church or to its proper officers. And if they neglect to hear them also, are by them excluded from the holy sacraments and the Christian communion, and by God himself in the kingdom of Christ. And if they promise and show real amendment, they are again received as members of Christ in his church. So that just kind of wants to give you the big picture of what, what keys is looks like in its practice. And we're going to unpack that quite a bit here. Um, but just notice two through four there, those little sub twos, three, four. Um, you know, the point I want to make there, if nothing else, is, you know, for people to say, well, you know, where is that in Scripture? Well, there's plenty of Scripture, and it comes through these forms. You see, the apostolic practice itself becomes the foundation of what we are to be doing in a church. You can go look how the, the apostles were doing it in Acts and elsewhere. Uh, there the, are directions that are given. We're going to be looking at them all in a minute. Here's some places where you can go and say, God, you know, in other words, I'm trying to. I'm speaking against this idea. I don't know what's the, the you know, the sort of lowest common denominator church or whatever. Where, you know, come on, let's talk about the essential things. What's the elements of Christian faith? And we we use the word elements to mean anything, anything that is instructed by Christ by good and necessary inference from Scripture. That's an element. We don't mean, oh, you know, no, because see, the the problem with defining elements in the way that I just alluded to, where it's really, well, the only important thing is the doctrine of, say, just, just, justification, what we would call the doctrine of justification. 
oh, that's, you know, the gospel. And often people assume the gospel is just what we would call one of 30 articles of faith, which is justification. That is, what is it, how do we get to heaven kind of thing? How do we get right with God? And it's a it's a first thing. It's as I said every time. I'll start there every time. But um, you have all this ink on very sacred parchment being used to give instructions and passed down from church to church as the authority of God. It must be essential. It must be important. And so here's some scriptures I'd encourage you later just to to go back, reflect on those scriptures. Um, but they basically will direct you to the practice of the apostles. Uh, that was, and again, when the practice is actually cited in and, uh, and esteemed in the scripture, it becomes canonical. It becomes a rule of practice. Um, apostolic practice, directions, and then directions given in scripture for the manner of its reception. I mean, it goes so far as to say now to the church member, here, here's your duty to this issue of church discipline, like I was alluding to. Why are they necessary? I think Ray, again, has done that, but I wanted you to locate where it's stated. By the way, a little, another caveat. Whenever, as you'll see, I'm going to give you a case study and a, and a sample of how we would write up a, a motion and to do this stuff and how we would communicate, how we would process it with the person. Um, keep this stuff if you think you're going to ever be an elder or whatever, because, you know, this is where you're going to go for the content of that letter. You know, where, where is that scripture that I, because whenever we speak to our congregants, in this process, it needs to be done in a manner that that both cites Scripture and our church's interpretation of that Scripture. And so any letter that we've ever written, you know, we're going to, or any kind of, or when we meet with a, a member and we, we talk about whether it's the censure of admonition, we'll set it up to where we're going to say, well, where we may say the word whereas or not, you know, that's a little old, but, but we can do that. But the point is, we'll sit down and say, now, you know, let's, let's talk about the Scripture. Let's look at what our church uh, consensus is as to what that Scriptures mean. Make sure we're all in the same consensus here. And therefore, this is what we are going to declare so that they can be assured that this isn't coming from a, a group of, you know, men in a dark room. You know, this is coming from God. And so all this is your source material for those writers you're going to write and for those things you're going to do if you're given these situations. Um, but here we have the confession then. Um, church censors are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of, of, of offending brethren, for deferring of others from the like offense, for deterring, I'm sorry, the others from the like offense, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, by vindicating the honor of Christ, the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer the, his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Think about each one of those for a minute. You know, how important uh, that makes this discussion. Um, I'm particularly interested in... in um, Maybe you're be particular. I think we've talked quite a bit about the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, um, but the, the next two bullets I think are really significant. I, I have observed, in fact, recently we've talked about it as a session. To the degree that there is a lack of discipline in the church, it, it, it's amazing how a licentiousness begins to fall in. It, you know, we we sometimes don't realize. Well, you all do. Um, Maybe those in, in the session, those like me in the pastor in our session. Some, I mean, people are out there talking. They know what's going on. You know, I think especially of uh, our children. 
high school and college kids especially, man, they know what they know what's going on in each other's lives way before their pastor and elders do. And probably even their parents. Exactly. And once it is discerned, and again, we're going to talk about how it gets discerned, um, for the church not to act, there is, there is a very dangerous message for those who are very vulnerable and, and to the temptation of sin. And, um, you know, very subtly, there's a sense in which, and not so subtly, you know, there's a kind of... Well, we all know we're not perfect spirituality that starts to bridge in. And all of a sudden it's a, you know, uh, and it just, and so the concern that this is raising is to the degree that we don't uh, take seriously the responsibility of the keys is to the degree that we are tempting weak sheep, vulnerable sheep. Um, There's probably nothing that, that more discourages obedience than to see other fellow Christians disobedient. I mean, right when you needed that strength of, of sharing in the koinonia of the conviction of the faith to see your brother or sister falling, it, it's, a, it's really, I hear it all the time, you know, it's just incredible how powerful um, the, the koinonia of saints can be in deterring sin and how absolutely uh, tempting the quantity of, of an unhealthy quantity of the saints can be to sin. So I think that's a very important point to note. Um, and notice also the infection of the whole lump. Um, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, there's something I've noticed over the years that uh, an unhealthy element can bring the whole church down like that. There's something in the nature of humanity that's anti-authoritarian maybe, that's anti-anybody that has power or anybody that has influence, and you've got this little uh, cell of people who are contrarian and negative and constantly poking holes, and you're just absolutely, it's like acidic. And if the session does not step in, I'm telling you, that's where you get your church splits. That, and, and that's sad because you have a lot of very otherwise sweet, beautiful, innocent people who are working hard for their church. And, and so I've tried, I've tried to present it this way. I mean, it's, I mean, I can't even think of some instance, but you know, if you think of it this way, um, how do I, what's an analogy? I mean, if I'm coaching a baseball team and and I have a guy out there playing shortstop that's just just unhealthy shortstop. It's not fair to that other those other guys that are out in that field that you let them work so hard and the coach doesn't do what he needs to do to make that work fruitful. And you know, it's the the chain is always as weak as what? <laughs> it's weakest link. And so you have to be very, I think this is a really important thing, that, that it is like a leaven. And the scripture says this, you know, that, that this affected area. Uh, now, don't be wrong, I'm not treating them as enemies. I'm treating them as unhealthy, perhaps, or weak. It can be a lot of things. But um, I just wanted to point out those two particularly. Maybe you want to talk about some of the others. Yeah. Um, just your uh, friend just referred to, as far as that illustration, you talked about how you can have all this pure water and you get in there, mm-hmm. and it just, yeah. you know, just a little bit can make 
I'm, I'm, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I, I could go on about this, but so many, I've, I'm privy to other churches that are going through very difficult times. I'm involved in two right now specifically that as a, as a kind of mediator, mentor, and, um, and it's, it, it, usually what you have are three or four really, I'm thinking of a session right now, three or four really good men who really are on board with the regime or whatever it is, you know. And you got this very strong, opinionated elder. And this is just a microcosm of what can happen in a larger church. And this person who, who wields a lot of influence, typically, who is now exerting power in a manner that's very destructive. And it's sad. It's sad. You know, and even for a pastor to step back and watch that happen. And for me to say, you know, man up, pastor. I don't care if it is coming against you. Man up. You've got to you've got to you you've got to teach your, your shepherds. You've got to instruct them. You've got to help them parse out this stuff. So it starts with teaching elders to teach. And to teach, I don't care even if it seems like it's a conflict of interest because you're teaching something that I mean, maybe there's someone there that's that's coming against you and you would you know, my temptation if, if I'm in that situation is to, well, you know, I don't want to be appeared as defensive. But you're leaving your rest of your session members vulnerable if, if you can't help go help them go to the scripture. So you, you have to do it with nuance and everything else. On the one hand, I, I, I've, I've encouraged a couple of these guys that I'm working with. Saying, you know, you got You can't just shirk your responsibility. I don't care if you are on the hot seat. Just do it. You know, do your job and teach. And, and on the other hand, you want to, you, you need to encourage the rest of the session members. Say, guys, you know, you you can't let this one segment. Is this really what you believe? Is this really what you think? Are you really aligned with this this country or anything? Or it could be some something that's contrarianism going on in the church in a way. And I mean that kind of bitter type. I mean, everybody has a right to be cynical about some things. I am. I don't. I don't mean that. Uh, and you certainly can have differing opinions, and that's totally safe. Okay, this is not what I'm talking about. In fact, I've always said it. We always need a few people that are just sitting right on the edge of the church. Uh, that are just contrary enough to where they give you authenticity, <laughs> you know, and they point out things that you need. So there's there's some there's some good stuff there. Anyway, just just notice these. These are all very carefully selected, and um, and these are the purposes, of course, of censures. Um, if the, you don't have yeah, that, things get out of they do, and it gets way. I mean, we've been in churches where we've seen that yes. way out of balance because it doesn't get addressed. Exactly. Thank you. Wise woman. That's exactly right. That's what that point is. It's like 11. And if you let it start to rise, you can't stop it. And it does, it very quickly gets to a place where it's, it's, the peace and purity is going to be compromised. So we pray a lot for peace and purity. Now you know what's behind peace and purity. There's going to be a lot of work. And it starts with every individual. And it starts, and remember, again, it always, we're going to go back to this, but it always starts with the one-on-one, where one person goes to another person who is, is the, who's the, the first cell of gangrene, and you say, you know, I love you, but what you're doing is, is, is compromising the spirit of the gospel here. Well, and you need to submit. Well, opinion. Yeah. And it isn't necessarily God's purpose. That's right. And, that's and being submissive to one another. Right. And putting yourself and your opinions in to that context. Thank you. Sounds like you've had some experience with this. I know you've been in leadership roles. Um, n- notice the three goals again. I just summarize them. Uh, but but um, but I like this little point that T. David Gordon makes. Um, 
we would, if, if you were to take those three kind of generalized uh, goals, um, I think everyone would. Um, I mean, this is a really good comment. Let me just read it. Where the only goal, if number three were the only goal of discipline, then we would never discipline those who appeared to be lost causes. Yet for the glory of God and for the purity of the church are also at stake. The 1 Corinthians 5 text indicates that discipline is both so that the spirit may be spaved and for the sake of the church, warning that a little leaven would poison the whole entire church. By the way, that phrase is in chapter 5, and that's a good case study for church discipline and what we're trying to do there. And then he goes on to say, it is thus never true that discipline will do no good. It may or may not win the wayward. Only God can do that. Um, and that's the other thing. Um, as a good parent, you know this. As anybody, you know, we're only responsible for being faithful. We're not responsible for their response. That's a tough, tough sell for those who have a... Every pastor tends to have a quasi-messianic complex, and we think we're supposed to be saving the world, and we're not. And um, we have to keep repenting of that, saying, no, Lord, you know, who am I fooling? This isn't the power of personality. This is the power of my persuasion. I mean, all of that, I do my best. But at the end of the day, you know, if the Spirit ain't moving, (laughs) there's no power on earth that's going to bring someone to repentance. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. And you just got to pray. And I appreciate how this congregation has made it a, a, a real habit of praying for peace and purity. And I'm really encouraging you every time I hear people do it. Um, are church officers infallible? I hope you know the answer to that, but here's it, here it is stated. Church censors are in three grades or degrees. What are these three grades? Notice in our confession. Uh, for the better attaining of these ends, the officers of the church are, per, are to, be, to proceed by admonition, suspension, and excommunication. Um, I would even add, as you'll see in a minute, I'll, exp- I'll go a little further from that. Um, but just before we do that, notice um, the uh, kind of the, the, the elephant in the room. We, we've all talked about how important it is. We've all talked about how we got to do it. Uh, let's just be real for why we don't and why it's hard. Now, I think I put this earlier in one of this little segment here, so it might be a review for you. But let's just be very honest. Why, why is it hard? Because it is. And one is it's pers- it is personal. It's hard for sinners to discipline sinners. I mean, by far, the number one inhibitor in my life, at least, is second-guessing myself. By far. <laughs> You know, I know the conviction. I know the doctrine. You know, I know it's supposed to happen. But there's a lot of subjective calls here. I mean, not one, you're trying to interpret Scripture, making sure that you feel comfortable. That's why it's important to have. So that's a little easier because our church has formed a consensus, a creed, as to what the Scriptures principally teach, and we can use that. So that boisters me up. But my church isn't corporately in this conversation with this person and trying to discern the some of the you know there's a there are a lot of judgment calls that are involved when something when does it like you said you were talking about the time when we do it that's a judgment call timing where has it gotten to the place where we just we're just praying for them and it moves to the spot where we need to go talk to them and when we go talk to them where does it come to the phase of we're instructing them to we're correcting them now to we're now bringing another party into it to it's coming to the session. Um, these are all judgment calls. And, um, and because of some of the ambiguity, and I think this is increasingly the case with those who are 
Um, I don't know, modern, I don't get into philosophical issues, but modern science and modernity in general has made us think that something it can't be relied upon until it can pass the scientific test. So there's this kind of, you know, until we, it's reproduced, you know, you got this, you know, the observable, reproducible, all this stuff. Um, so there's a sense in which nothing is a fact anymore until it passes the rationalist or empiricist, if you know what I'm saying philosophically, uh, rules for a fact. And the fact of the matter is, most of life isn't going to pass those rules. I mean, I can't decide whether I'm going to marry you or not based on those facts. <laughs> and yet I've got to make a decision about it. And on it goes. So, so I think there's a huge issue of personal, and that kind of relates to the exegetical. Certainly, uh, there are some things more difficult to understand scripturally than others, and we got to do the best we can. Uh, culturally, uh, you got all these issues working against you, where you're going to be made, you're going to be, you're going to feel like you're being misunderstood if you get involved in people's lives. Um, uh, the individualism, the volunteerism, the rise of litigation, sentimentalism, on it goes, but it all comes down to this, um, I'm probably, or you're probably going to be misunderstood. Probably. You can almost just kind of, now, doesn't mean you become cynical, and you know, oh, well, I'm going to be misunderstood anyway, so I'll be a, a butt, okay? No. You do it as under the Lord. You do it with every Jonas that you know how to muster. You do it the best you can. But I'm going to tell you, I've had not a couple elders call me after engaging someone. And one instance, someone who, who confessed he stayed up all the night, never got sleep, cried a little bit, feeling just totally devastated. Totally devastated by the fact that it felt like his whole person had been misunderstood. And, you know, and I had to literally say to this guy, you know, Blank, you, you know, you're a good elder. You know, you did the best you could. And that's what, that's the, that's the rule we go by. You do, the, you don't have the responsibility not to do it. You don't, you don't have the option not to do it here. So what, you just have to trust that God has given you enough to where you can do it faithfully. So go, put your whole mind, heart, get counsel, prepare, whatever you gotta do, and do it faithfully. Because, because you're not going to have empirical and rationalistic certainty. And you're not probably, it's not going to at least immediately be understood in terms of your motives, in terms of the heart, in a world that has abandoned these sorts of ideas in the first place, culturally. So there really is a, a bit of a sacrificial lamb nature to some of this. And I think these, these good, what, what do y'all think of these? Uh, does those make sense? I mean, it's hard. And, and we just got to, let's all, uh, this is a little bit of a support group 101. It's hard, guys. And so so just me saying it hopefully encourages you that, okay, so it's all right. It's going to happen. Every single elder I know has happened to them where they came home, they second-guessed everything they said. Uh, a person says things to, about them and to other people that you don't have to respond or retort to. You don't have the ability to retort to and clarify it because you know to do that would create a bigger mess for your church. So you just got to take it and trust that God sees. And hopefully you have a group, uh, hopefully, and this is important, you have a board who who backs you up. I don't mean blindly, but backs you up. That understands what you're going through. So you're not doing it alone. Anyway, these are some things. Um, There's a lot of different ways to deliver the message, too. Sure. But you know what? You can Knowing the person 
and knowing how it's going to be received and so forth, it makes a big difference. It does, but that scares me a little bit. I mean, well, it, I mean, I agree with you, totally agree with you. But I, I was just, I was just addressing the fact that that the. In spite of your best efforts, it takes two for communication. Right. It takes someone else who's got the heart to receive it. And often, your first encounter, I would say, often, the first, you do the best you can, and there may be a negative reaction. Now, oftentimes, there's a positive reaction later, too, which is good. So I think, I'm just saying that so that no one... Because for me, a person who's in this position to do it, and I, I suspect you have been there too, but but um, I, I have real compassion for my elders and my shepherd leaders because I know they suffer greatly at self-doubt. And that's, that's all I want to say. I agree with what you're saying, and I know you do too, but... These are human beings too, you know. And I, I look at you right now, and you're, you're 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 Christians too, you know. I mean, I'm starting to cry here. You know, they're putting themselves out on the limb here for you, and they're Christians. They deserve for us to rally around them and say, "God loves you, and you you're okay, Blake. You're a good elder, and and you might not have said it perfectly, but you know what? People are capable of hearing you, even if you don't say it perfectly." They're capable of hearing it if they want to hear it. You know, that's what I'm trying to say. People will hear what they want to hear. And I don't care if you... There is no perfect way to say it. And you will never say it perfectly. But that being said, I totally agree with what you're saying. In preparing to meet with people, you need to think through that. Jonathan and Dave. Mm -hmm. uh, That's one way of approaching a a situation. Paul got some... You know, very different ways of yeah. uh, approaching a, a problem. Yeah. The, yeah, and I agree with you, and you can see a lots of those situations, but right. but the bottom line is only you, a, a good leader is going to be able to be spontaneous in the sense that they, only you will be able, how do I say it? I will trust that if, if God has called you to, to be involved in someone's life, that you will be given by God the ability to do it. And it's not for me, their pastor, to second guess, unless they've broken a rule of faith and practice, it's not for me to get in there and micromanage how they did it necessarily. Because there's a there's a thing here that I'm trying to, you can probably tell you, you've sort of touched into something that is good that you did. I'm just trying to say that, that we've really got to make it easier. Discipline is not happening in the church precisely because everyone's scared to death to do it. They're scared they're going to be condemned. They're scared they're going to be rejected. They're scared. I mean, remember, these elders, are. this is their church family too. They, they would actually like to enjoy their church. And uh, not even say that for the pastor. And so, you know, and you're sitting there in your mind going, oh, man, pick and choose your arguments, you know. And, oh, man. I mean, I don't know anybody wants to do this stuff. You know, and so that's all I'm saying. But I agree with you. There is tactics, but the Scripture hasn't prescribed those tactics for a particular situation. So you're going to be left... And I'm just trying to back you up on it because I'm here training. I'm backing you up on it. You're going to be left making a subjective call. Does this look like the Jonathan David? Does this look like the Paul and Barnabas? Does this look like the Apostle Church? And and then a thousand other ways that maybe we haven't read in Scripture. You know, How do I do it? When two or three are gathered. Well, that's the ultimate court. The, the session. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, 
I just really wanted to, to say that this is quite a, a breath of fresh air. It's mm-hmm. wonderful because I did just grow, I grew up in a, in a context where you would never see something like this. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like it's, it's very easy for us as people to just assume that things will just naturally work that we yeah. and not step in. And the, the truth of the matter is that that's mostly true. That if we believe that the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of these individuals, these things will work out. But having experienced, uh, you know, a situation where an elder was promoted too quickly and he was a youth pastor and then he joined a cult and the church that I used to go to but is still really mm. still hurting from that. Mm-hmm. 10, 15 years later. Mm. And I think that the thing that we need to be aware of when it comes to the discipline matters like this is, yeah, most of the time things will work themselves out naturally. Mm -hmm. But when it doesn't, it is so bad that we should always be willing to, you know, step in, even if things might work out. Thank you. That one out of nine, that one out of nine. It does, and, I, and you mentioned the point that it will work out. Yeah, I mean, this gets back to your point. I mean, there is a judgment call. When do you step in? There's no doubt about it, and you're right. There are many cases where we'll just... I do think there's a wisdom not to, to, to step in quickly, to, to step back, pray, you know, see if things kind of work out, but, but to be diligent to go back. And we'll talk about how information flows. There's two ways, basically. There's a case with process and a case without process. And you think in conceptual terms that way, is this a case where I need to investigate? Is this a case in which I'm going to give it time because maybe this will... I prefer that every situation be a case without process. And you'll explain how you'll see why. Um, and to give it a little space for that to happen is always important and wise. And, sh- and, and pastoral and caring. So I may find out or it might come to our attention that something's going on and we'll pray for him. We, it might start with a very subtle, you know, coffee house chat. Hey, Billy Bob, how you doing? Things doing all right with you? Uh, you know, and no, don't, don't think just because I came to you for coffee house. It's, I'm, 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 I'm investigating here. I mean, now nobody, I'm going to walk in this room and no one's going to want to talk to me. I should never have used that example. I, I can see this is going to be really bad. No, but the point is, is you'll just you'll try to get close to the person. Is my point. You know, you just you start with that, and you're not making a big issue, and you're giving them every opportunity. In other words, to kind of say, God, actually, I've been really struggling with something. I probably ought to talk to you, and that does happen quite a bit. I'll come up to someone and, How you doing? Fine, fine. Sometimes because I and I didn't know it, and you guys have done well. Actually, there's something going on. I probably ought to have. I ought to sit down and have a conversation with you. That's always ideal. You know, because you're a servant role, rather. You're always a servant role, but it feels more servant. And they have been empowered, which is very important to repentance. So, uh, anyway, this is great. We're kind of getting into the nuances here. Uh, zip over to the other side real quick, because it probably is better than to start with part three. I should have put it, I think I probably meant to, before part three. The positive dimension. Um, oh, so when we talk about this sort of censures and um, these various dimensions, notice... Um, the three. So actually, this should have gone before this. You see, I just realized that. See down at uh, Westminster 34, there are three censures, right? 
Now, I want you to look at that, and I meant to put this next under the note on censors. There's a page number. Page five. So if you look at page five, note censors are the third dimension. What I want to do is put these things, which our confession speaks as formal actions of the church, in the perspective of discipline that is much more broadly understood. Um, and then the way the scripture speaks of it. So there's a positive dimension. Teaching to observe all that Jesus commanded. You're under discipline right now. <laughs> it's happening. You're te- being taught. And I'm teaching, right? Um, and that happens in course instruction, catechism, corporate worship, godly examples, sacraments, all kinds of ways that are, that are communicating and bringing us under the rule of Christ in terms of our conscience. The prevenient dimension, the watching over souls to prevent their going astray, um, this, of course, you think about regular visitations. You know, uh, you could get into all sorts of other ways, but that's one that particularly comes to mind in a formal program here that we have regular visitations of elders, right? Through that we pray for you when that happens and all that. Um, that's a prevenient. That's and by far, notice you'd rather move in the direction of one, two, and three, not three, two, one. So you have the prevenient direction, and um, and uh, that's when you get into this Whitmer book that we're going to get into, and especially next time, you're going to see we're going to get in much more detail about okay, what what does it mean to really watch over the flock of God? What are the programs you can put in place? How do you do visitation? We'll do we'll get into a lot of that stuff, and then the remedial dimension, uh, of course, and then the remedial direct dimension then has three levels. So you could have just put that right there. And notice again the little caveat by T. David, uh, stages, not steps. This is not a legalistic process. Okay, I checked that one off. I went and talked to him. Now I'm going to get somebody else involved, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Or step one, you know, no, it's, we try to make it very uh, stages rather than steps. And you want to stay in the stage as long as there's evidence of, of genuine, you know, movement. You know, you don't you don't go to the corrective thing, you know, except that you've really exhausted everything else. So we're we're not you're slow here. We're we're slow to get into the power power confrontations. You want to be at least, yeah. Yeah, I just think this has just been so huge in, in this idea of having patience and and this idea of things not being finished in our time. And, and yeah, that's right. Being very slow to, to yeah. go to the next step. And you see that down there, private stage, arbitration stage, ecclesial formal stage. That's the Matthew 18 passage. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, listen, talk, do all the stuff you can do. And again, if we could train our, all of our church members to be involved in this. We're all the family of God taking care of each other. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to wait for dad to get involved if you're thinking of a family model. You know, for Stephen to go to Nathan and say, Nathan, man. You know, and, and, and actually they do that quite a bit nowadays. They, you know, they try to, they don't come to me and Lisa. They, they kind of deal with some of this stuff and I can see them kind of, you know, you better, you know, why don't you get this deal with, you know, let's not, let's not talk to mom and dad, you know, something like that, you know. And it's just trying to keep peace in the family, which is a great thing. And, uh, and there's a good principle there, I think. Um, so stop there. Uh, we have the part three, the rules of discipline. Um, and what I wanted to do just right there is notice a few key passages. Once we get into the specific, now we're getting into the, uh, the sort of formal stage of discipline. 
Um, here are some passages I think that are very important passages, particularly Proverbs 18, the one who first states a case seems right until the other comes and cross-examines. Every element of the process is going to try to honor that. Every, every stage is carefully fabricated to do that. Um, uh, it's very intentional. And you hear some of these other passages. Galatians 6 is one that we almost always include in a pastoral letter or in a uh, admonition or whatever we're doing. We always, in fact, it's even in the language of our liturgy in the Boca Church Order. Galatians 6, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. And so that tells me that when we do get into this involvement of correcting, reproof, etc., that we do it as a fellow sinner. I mean, this is telling me that it's not sitting up on high, the elders, you know, as gods. But we come and we appeal to them in their conscience as a fellow sinner. You know, and so it's important that that is explicitly stated every time we go to rebuke someone or, or correct someone or deal with someone that we, you know, listen, I, you know, you said how we come. Well, this tells us, come in gentleness. Always. There's never a time to come in harshness. Always. You can be firm, but it's got to be gentle. Um, it's got to be as a fellow sinner. Not as, I'm your elder. Do this. That's true. But I'm a fellow sinner first. And man, I, I, I understand how hard it is. You know, you may be struggling in this area. I may not be struggling that area. I am struggling in other areas. And who am I to cast the first stone in terms of making a personal judgment against you? And I'm not making a personal judgment. I might be coming to an ecclesial judgment, but it's not between me personally. And, and you know, one of the things that I've tried to do um, in situations is um, whenever we've had a situation where there was some kind of admonition or whatever, um, make it a point uh, to do something with that person or at least connect with that person as fast as you can. You know, like... Just making a beeline on Sunday morning to go up and, hey, how you doing, man? I really appreciate the other night. And, and just go and move forward. Kind of like as a parent. You know, what do you do when you discipline a child? Well, you want to very quickly restore and, and make them feel safe with you. You want to go and probably give them a hug and, you know, I love you. Now, you know, that may be a little tacky to say quite like that to a fellow person. It may not be. Uh, but, but you know, it's, it's more than just everything's still, it's giving them the appearance that personally everything's fine here. I'm thinking of a situation that many of you might know, some of you do know, a person who's been excommunicated, who was a former husband of one of the members of our church. Um, and, uh, you know, it's amazing that we are still good friends. I mean, I have very strong opinions about how this person acted and very strong opinions about how I think it was wrong. In fact, there's two cases I can think of like that. Two husbands. So now i got two thinking in my head. There are more, but at least these two. And I can honestly say, you know, that, um, that, that when he, every once in a while, gets into my life for whatever reason, um, it's a very positive interaction. But it, I think part of that was because right afterwards, you know, there was this sort of, there has to be a, a bit of a repairing in terms of making sure the person knows that this is not personal. You know, you know. I can still, if, if you and I were playing tennis, we could still play tennis the next day. Because that was not what was happening that Monday night at session meeting. It was not governing friendships. It was not governing whether or not I can play tennis with you the next day. It was governing your formal relationship with the Church of Jesus Christ, of which I'm acting as an officer. And so we just got to think like that. 
And um, I think that's very important. So gentleness and all this other stuff. Um, what I'm thinking of doing, actually, is, uh, again, I think I, I just realized, I'm gonna, we're not quite at part four yet, because part three is going to be part of part five, so sorry. I'm going to just do an executive session. I think we're rolling here, and this is a good time to keep doing it. So let me, let me draw you now to part five, but get Boko 27.1 in there. Would somebody read that on page four? Discipline is the exercise of authority given the church by the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct and guide its members and to promote its purity and welfare. The term has two senses, the one referring to the whole government, inspection, training, guardianship, and control which the church maintains over its members, its officers, and its courts. The other, a restricted and technical sense, signifying judicial process. You see there again, that's why I put the notes after census there. there there's, a, there's a context, but note the two, part, the two senses. Everybody clear on that? I'm, again, this is where I'm going to start just making observations unless you want to talk about it. So picking up in chapter 5, um, relative to the motives and manner of acting as judges, uh, with someone, um, well, I'll just look at that. The exercise of discipline is highly important and necessary, and its proper uses. Discipline maintains the glory of God, the period of the church, keeping and reclaiming. I've already read that. Um, notice uh, 27.4, the power which Christ has given the church is for building up and not for destruction. Um, it is to be exercised as under a dispensation of mercy and not of wrath. I mean, isn't that encouraging to you? I mean, that's, that's dogma here. The dogma of the church is it should be gospel-centered in the way that it's done. It's a manifestation of mercy, not wrath. I mean, this is the opposite of what everybody in the world thinks discipline is, I think. That's why I don't even use the word punishment anymore. That word can, as you know, have different meanings. But punishment speaks of wrath, I think, in a modern mind. So I don't ever speak of church discipline with the word punishment. um, Because I don't think it would communicate what the heart of what we're saying is. I mean, it's, it's the older use of punishment when you say you've got to punish your child. And hopefully when you're punishing your child, it's not wrath. <laughs> it's not judging them. It's disciplining them. It's coaching them. It's trying to correct them in a, way, in a manner they can understand if, in fact, you do that. So, um, so this is really, this is, this is um, I know you all get tired of me saying this, but it's actually in our book of church order. And you can expect and hold your officers to it. You know, and you should hold yourself to it as an officer. It's got to be a manifestation of, of, of mercy. That's just another way of saying what the Gospel Coalition talks about. That's gospel-centered. The whole thing, gospel-centered. Um, 32.12. I've just pieced out, obviously, things all throughout the, uh, the section here. When the trial is about to begin, it shall be the duty of the moderator solemnly to announce from the chair that the court is about to pass to the consideration of the case and to enjoin the members to recollect and regard their high character as judges of the court, Jesus Christ, and get into the principle and the solemn duty which they are about to engage. Um, it is appropriate that with each uh, citation, the moderator or clerk call the attention of the parties to the rules of discipline and assist the parties to obtain access to them. And so what I'm trying to say here is is how this idea of wrath versus mercy versus wrath, how this idea of of um, the purpose of discipline that we've talked about, the glory of God, everything we've said, this is a clause that says, hey, you know, slow down when you when you call this meeting and make sure you help them understand all that. That's all I meant by to put that in there. Just kind of a little bit of a reminder. You know, we're supposed to actually not assume that people know this stuff. So take your time. Write a long letter if it takes it. 
but make sure they understand the heart of what you're doing and the the governing spirit of what we're doing that we've been talking about. Um, let's see here. Again, I'm just kind of wanting to take take here um, the duty of the courts. Uh, again, just this kind of clarifying this last phase, of course, of the of the second sense of, of discipline. For the orderly and efficient dispatch of ecclesial business, it is necessary that the sphere of action of each court should be distinctly defined. The session exercises jurisdiction over a single church. The presbytery over what is common to the ministers, sessions, and churches within a prescribed district. And the general assembly over such matters as concerns the whole church. The jurisdiction of these churches is limited by the express provisions of the Constitution. That's just reminding you that the session is the only uh, jurisdiction for a local church, unless it is appealed, as we'll see later. So that just clarifies who's doing what. Um, Notice 12, the church session is charged with maintaining the spiritual government of the church for which purpose it has power to. And I just want to take the time and read this, because here is the job description, more or less, stated in the book of churches. So could we just take turns A, B, C, D, E, F? Let's just read it and think about it. Hey. To inquire into the knowledge, principles, and Christian conduct of the church members under its care, to censure those found delinquent, to see that parents do not neglect to present their children for baptism, to receive members into the communion of the church, to remove them for just cause, to grant letters of dismissal to other churches, when which, when given to parents, shall always include the names of their non-communing baptized children. B. Somebody? To examine, ordain, and install ruling elders and deacons on the election by the church, and to require these officers to devote themselves to their work, to examine the records of the proceedings of the deacons, to approve and adopt the budget. C. To approve actions of special importance affecting church property. D. To call congregational meetings when necessary. To establish and control Sunday schools and Bible classes with special reference to the children of the church. To establish and control all special groups in the church, such as men in the church, women in the church, and special Bible study groups. To promote world missions. To promote obedience to the Great Commission in its totality at home and abroad. To order collections for pious uses. To exercise in accordance with the directory for worship, authority over the time and place of the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, over all other religious services, over the music in the services, and over the uses to which the church building and associated properties may be put. To take the oversight of the singing and the public worship of God, to assemble the people for worship when there is no minister, to determine the best measures for promoting the special spiritual interests of the church and congregation. To observe and carry out the lawful injunctions of the higher courts, and to appoint representatives to the higher courts who shall, on their return, make report of their diligence. So let's stop there for a minute. Any, um, there's so many observations that, that I could make, but I want to give you a chance. Is there anything here that you'd like to have more comments on, or whether you would like to just, what, what do you notice here? Anything strike you? Comprehensive. Yeah. 
That's one of the things I wanted to big point. I mean, you know, and there has to be, a, and every bit of that means there has to be a process for that to all work in terms of reporting and getting reports in. And I mean, unless we hate them, there's an organization here. But the, what's underneath all this? We believe in a government of elders. We believe Scripture prescribed that as a as a method. And so it isn't left for every committee to govern the church. And you do commit, you know, a committee, a music committee, is governing the church if they're left to themselves to decide what the church sings. Now, it doesn't mean that, that every Sunday we bring the worship, but there is a liturgy that, is, that has been governed. There is a range of music and policies for how we use music that's been governed. And the session, of course, expects the staff to execute that according to those policies. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. And I love that you said that, Comprehensive, so be patient. You know, it's amazing, you know, if, if you stop and think about if you just stop and think about what's the processes that have to happen for these things to happen, <laughs> committees and all that junk, um, well, okay, you might not get a response from the session within a week. you know, Or you may not realize that, that especially as we're about to come into the season of planning, that you know, there's going to be a barrage. You know, I'm going to be sitting down looking at just a, a book of, of, of various committees and ports, etc., and and getting all that assimilated, and and it's you know, yeah, I certainly would beg some some patience. You know, um, you can't get your head around all of it at once, and everyone thinks their their team, their committee is so important, and it is. But you know, hold it. I don't know. You know, you can't expect the session to get to the detail levels all the time either, though. And that's good. You don't want it to be the That's why you have these subcommittees, etc. Um, so there's a there's a real team effort going on when you stop to think about all this that's going on behind the scenes. And everybody's important in that team. But yeah, what else? Do you notice, especially A, and well, actually let's read 32.2 because it states it in a different way. Would someone read 32.2? 31.2? I'm sorry, 31.2. My eyes, yeah. Of all church sessions and presbyteries to exercise care over those subject to their authority. They shall, with due diligence and great discretion, demand from such persons satisfactory explanations concerning reports affecting their Christian character. This duty is more imperative than those who deem themselves uh, aggrieved by injurious injurious reports shall ask an investigation. If such investigation, however originating, should result in raising a strong presumption of the guilt of the party involved, the court shall institute process and shall appoint a prosecutor to prepare the indictment and to conduct the case. The prosecutor shall be a member of the court, except that in a case before the session. He may be any community member of the same congregation now I know this language starts to get very legal ease sounding and it can feel scary and all of that prosecutor and defendant and accused and you know but what else language would you use you know I, I do think we try to soften it up in practice when we do it I mean people who've gone through it probably don't hear words like prosecution and things like that they just hear that we're you know working through this but but anyway so don't get too taken out but notice carefully if you've been reading between the lines especially or not between the lines and 12.5a and 31.2, you begin to sense that there's generally two ways by which 
uh, the session is when they're governing and watching over the flock of God and all these principles we've talked about, it, it can happen one of two ways. Uh, in term, after, well, it can happen a lot of ways through the watchful oversight. But this investigation, there are times when there may be a rumor. There may be a, somehow it's gotten around that Billy Bob is doing something and you, you're worried for Billy Bob and you're worried for your church. And so the church, the session does have the authority to initiate an investigation based on hearsay. But you would want to do it in a very, you know, cautious, open way, immersive way. Or um, it can come to you through someone who, who asks for an investigation or who, who wants to report something like that. It can be more of a formal process. So you'll see those two things. And you can say thirdly, it can come with you when the person themselves come and say, I need to come and meet with a session and confess a sin. By far, as I've said, the best way for it to happen. And what what I, even as a pastor, um, most, most of the time that this happened here, it's probably happened because either somebody or a pastor has met with this person in a pastoral you know situation and tried to coach them to that way. You know, and said, hey, okay, now here's what we would advise. You know, you want to, and, and by the way, you know, it's interesting. We've, uh, we've been dealing with this as pastors, uh, you know, more than I can remember this year. And it's always presented to people that our goal is for you to experience the absolution of Christ. You know, we want you, if you're sitting here and you're confessing a sin to me, now I want you to experience the absolution of Christ. And there are in some instances where we fear that, that just for me, meeting with this person would not affect that. For you to come and to formally confess a sin before the session and to see this man that you're, you know, around you and the spirit that you've been, been, we've been talking about. And it's always been, every time I've, I've never seen it done otherwise here, honestly. I never can remember it ever not being done in, in, a, in a way that's merciful. I really mean that. And um, at least my judgment. Um, and to see almost every time someone walks away and says, I was struck with the mercy, in so many words, with the mercy and the grace of the session. And you know, it's, that's, that's very important for me. You know, it's one thing for me to declare to them that they're absolved. It's another thing for them to be hugged by session members and hands laid upon them and men praying for them and for their, for them to experience the grace of the gospel and the power of the gospel and their temptations to get sin. It's a very powerful event in a person's life. And they walk away with a, with a confidence that, you know, and we always say to them before that, you, you are right with God, Blank. You are right with God. You know? You, you, you hear us, and we're here to put flesh on that. Somehow being hugged by those authorized to declare it has a way of being multi-sensory in expressing absolution. They walk away feeling the touch of God, literally. And so uh, that's so important you know, in this process, and cases where that process are always are the best way to do it. But even if it's a case with process and they're judged to be wrong, we would then lead to an opportunity of repentance, and and that same process would advance in their absolution. You're always trying to get them there. That's the goal, is for them to hear it declared formally, officially, on behalf of God as the king. And we usually quote that Matthew 16 passage, and we say, you are absolved blank. You are right with God. There is no fear of condemnation. Hold your head up. Walk out. You're a child of God. And we do it in all kinds of ways. That is the goal of every single 
process is to get to that place where that happens. And uh, it drives everything, and it does begin to drive everything you do and why you do it to get to that goal of absolving them. And, uh, so it's really these are this is all language in your boko, and uh, it directs you, but it actually has meaning. Yeah. Just a quick question. Yeah. Are there uh, rules of evidence that apply yeah. in these court cases? Because you mentioned a case can uh, start on the basis of hearsay, which right. is, as it is in the civil sphere, but not yeah. on the basis of a conviction. There is. There is, and, and we'll get. Uh, I don't know how much you'll get, but if you go, I don't know if I. I think it was in your your uh, your readings, but basically, there's, this is part two of the Book of Church Order, and if you want to read, I, I don't. I didn't. I mean, it's it's got tons of stuff like that, um, and when you get into the actual case and you sit down and get to that stuff, but um, I'm just pulling out some key principles here. But yeah, there are, and they're different for officers and they're different for pastors. You know, in a pastor, it's right out of Timothy. There has to be more than one. You know, because it's expected that there's going to be a lot of slander against people who are in the, up front, and so all, there's a higher rule. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, that you know one couldn't do it, but if one did it, then you'd have to investigate it and do all this other stuff to find the other witness, or at least if it doesn't have another witness, something. But if a pastor's saying I didn't do it, another guy's saying I did, you, there's another process there. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that's hard for me to, to envision here, how often does this happen? Is, is this, you know, if you have yeah. a dozen cases? Well, I've been here, I've been here um, how many years have I been here, Peggy? About 25, 6? I don't know, where are we now? 24? No, 22. 22, but I've been here 25, that's right, 24. Anyway, I've been in the city 24. Um, I, I, I'm almost certain, and I can. It's um, in terms of where it's ever gone to the place of excommunication. It's no, no, of, of us. It's going to a session. Going to a court. Court. Yeah. Well, again, that's it's a hard. Okay, let me try to answer this way. I can only think of two excommunications in the history of our church. Two or maybe three. I can't remember. There's one. There's two. I'm trying. But, uh, but they remember. I remember every one of them. The most horrifying, devastating things I ever do, and I cry every time I pronounce it. Um, I can think of, you know, cases without process where, where, where people will come. See, that means what you mean. A case without a process where a session, somebody it says to the session. session. Yeah, well, it depends on how you come to session is what I'm trying to say. Oh. And so, so a case without process, oh, gosh, there's probably been quite a few where uh, people have... Uh, Sin, they're struggling with that sin, and, and through pastoral counsel, they discern that, you know, I want to come and confess my sin to the church. I want to have hands laid on me and prayed for me that I might, um, you know, have the power of God. In other words, it's an attempt to just ask for prayer, basically. That happens quite a bit, you know, where the session is available to pray with people, lay hands on them, and pray for their being set free at their request. That's a, you could call it a case without a process, and nothing happens. They just come and pray. Um, it's quite a bit. Huh? I don't know. You know, I don't know. Um, in a given year, maybe three. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't know, four. I wish it happened more. I mean, to me, that's just people saying, I want my, my elders to pray for me. Um, then maybe in um, the other cases where it's actually investigated, I, I, again, probably in the life of the church, not enough, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm embarrassed a little bit. But not enough. Um, there's been situations that probably should have gone forward quicker and we were just whatever reason didn't do it um, but I don't know three or four 
of, of a case with a full process. Of, I can't ever remember having a full process because usually in the spirit of the gospel, people get to confession much quicker. See, that's what we're trying to do. We, we're, we, I, in fact, I don't know that I can... We've never had a, a quote, formal court case here that as this process that you're talking about. We've never done that other than the excommunication. But even in the excommunications, they were willing to confess that they did it and they just weren't willing to repent of it. Yeah. So I can't ever remember in the history of my, this church where we had to establish a prosecutor, where we had to establish a defense, you know, all that stuff. That typically happens at a, at a presbytery level a little bit more. But um, I can't actually ever remember it happening. But again, part of that is because there's a lot of pastoral grease that's going on here. A lot of helping people know that they can confess their sins and, and they're and they're going to have mercy given to them. We're not eager to, to, to excommunicate people out of the church or anything like that. And so there's a spirit here, and I, and I hope you're hearing it. I think you are, but it's it's all in whether we really believe what we've been talking about about the gospel, and it's for everybody. And yes, as I think Kevin did a good job. It, we, we are very opposed to the idea that you get into the church by grace through faith alone and you sustain yourself to the church by works. You're in the church as a right of God's dying. And until you come to the place where you are not showing evidence of genuinely having saving faith in Jesus Christ, you have the right to be treated as a child of God. And therefore, think about how you would treat your children. Um, you don't go have a court case every single time your kids sinned. You 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 had a you had a, a a parenting process of loving them and caring for them and bringing them to see the errors of their ways. And and if you did and if you had a formal you know censure, it would be admonition, but it would be one that would be followed with a big hug. That's pretty much the spirit of this church. It's parenting. <laughs> I, and I, I think I was going to say something about that because I think that's a different type been on three court, well, two court cases all mm. um, And um, one big difference is this church's commitment to elder visitation. Mm. I think you stop a lot right. with that face-to-face yeah. discussion, and, and who knows how many since have been yeah. repented and forgiven in yeah. those conversations. Exactly. You'll never know. I will never know. That's exactly right. And, I, and, I think and I'm glad I don't know. That's <laughs> a lot of things from elevating, right? That's exactly they right. They've been hugged, so they don't need to come have everybody hug them. Exactly. I can't. Inv- I mean, he's got it right on. If you, you if you think of the session as a court first and not as a shepherding community, you you start going into processes. That's right. But that's that's just. I mean, this is. I'm I'm trying to point out things that that are in our book of church order that you need to know as someone trained to be an elder. But God forbid, um, we. I, I'm a firm believer, and maybe too much so, I don't know, because it takes a lot more work. It's easier to go to a process almost sometimes because you just kind of let the book tell you what to do. But, but there's a lot of shepherding, merciful grease going on here. And and with that happening, hopefully there always will be. And you know, Craig over there meeting with this person and really remember what I said. I mean, now your your question is pulling out, and I'm happy you've asked it. It's pulling out your comment. But remember what we said, you, you're, it's phases. The first phase is one on one, and that usually there's a lot of times that's a pastor one on one. And I can't tell you. It would be impossible if you wanted to include that in a process. It would be impossible. I mean. 
uncountable numbers of times where I've engaged in a life of a believer in this church and we have spent years working on a sin that never came to the session. Years. Years. I mean, I'm thinking of a situation right now and, and a struggle with uh, pornography and the sexual, you know, things. And, and I mean, it still hasn't come to session because there's still evidence of genuine, humble growth and accountability with me on this issue. And, and, um, and you know, the person has, is not behaving externally upon it. It's become, it's more in an internal stage, etc. So at some point, see, the question I'm asking as a pastor is not when I've satisfied step one so I can go to step two. It's when do I feel that I am preventing the grace of Christ from coming to this person because I've kept it to myself. And, you know, now this person needs the power of the gospel that will come through a corporate experience with their session that I can't give them individually because I'm casual with them. I'm working buddy-buddy as a pastor. There's something very powerful. And, and like I said, and another reason I'll, 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 well, the cases without process to me are very crucial because oftentimes it will be someone who, let's say Craig has been working with them, and they've come to a place of really, confessing their sins to Craig and they're really wanting to go forward, but they're struggling with insurance. And Craig comes to me and says, you know, this person's struggling with insurance. Um, we've talked through this. They're, 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 they're changing their life. They're moving forward, but they have all this guilt. And for whatever reason, the pronunciation that I give or we give on Sundays and absolution hasn't quite made it through the flesh. And Craig's encouragement that the gospel is real hasn't quite made it through. Well, that might just be because Craig and I are such buddies. And Craig says, "Well, you know what I think? I, I think we ought to set, we ought to, you know, set up a set, meeting with the session. You come in, you confess your sin to the session. You let the, set, the session deliberate on it and say, okay, we've heard the confession of blank. What is our censure? What are we going to do? What's our action? And for the sin, for the censure to come back with an admonition, usually." Admonishment to okay, uh, the scripture says, and what often happens there is it reiterates how sinful the sin is. On the one hand, I can think of a recent situation where I walked by and said, I really never thought about my sin quite that way, but yeah, the session helped them realize how serious it was. But right alongside of that seriousness, where sin abounds, remember the principle, what abounds? Grace abounds all the more. You get bigger grace, too, if you have bigger sin. So, so after they've gotten the big sin, they go, oh, the grace is big. And, and to hear that session turn the corner and say, all this stuff about why this sin is so serious for you and why it's going to destroy your life and it's going to destroy your community and all the, the dangers of this sin. And you're over there going <laughs> like this, you know, or something. And then for the session to turn that corner and say, now... Uh, do you blank know the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe what our confession says about the Jesus Christ and his death on the cross? And we are walking through scripture now. We are walking through our church consensus about that scripture. And we say, therefore, our ruling is, you know, look at me, I'm starting to move. We rule that you're absolved. It's done. It's a rule. It's, it's a judgment of the court of Jesus Christ for you. And that guy walks out of there, and, and, or that woman or whoever, and uh, they found absolution. See, so it's so sad because I just feel this incredible defensiveness right now that everyone's hearing this wrong. I know y'all aren't, but I just can't tell you the spirit of grace that can make this all so right. And, and, and I think 
I, I mean, I would never do this, but I would uh, bring... Well, you gave me permission. Could you share your experience? You asked me to do this, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> I have been under this one, in this uh, 20 years ago. And I can certainly say that, you know, as we've been talking about this, everything that Preston says has been, you know, not just a reminder, but I would, I mean, along with what he said, it makes such a difference to have that kind of discipline done from a group of people, a group of men who you know before it ever happens, that they love you, that they stand for Christ, not themselves individually, and that there really was no fear involved because, again, it wasn't an ex- expectation of punishment. Um, and, you know, it was, mine would have been a case without process, I think. <laughs> there yep. was no trial or anything. But the nature of the sin was sort of such that it couldn't be hidden, there were ramifications. And therefore, it went. It wasn't just you know one person. It, it was all. And I remember when I came before the session, and uh, you know one of the first things I said was, "I'm so glad that you're here with me, mm-hmm. and that we're together." And someone brought out a box of tissues, and we went through it all. And and even the the specific discipline that was meted out, which in this case was suspension from the table for a period of time was still not an unloving judgment either. I think it was what I needed to really be truly and fully brought about to the largeness of this sin and then the largeness of grace. So being sort of denied that, and especially in a church like this where it's every week, not just four times a year, and it's really well taught as this is the communion with the body of Christ. yeah, and, and your case, thank you. She came to me privately and said, look, I really want you to use me if you want to in this process. So I was going to wait and see if I felt there was a need. And I just felt there was a need. If anyone wants to ask questions, I'm happy to answer But to point out a couple of things you just said, there was two principles there. And again, we're kind of getting into where you'll learn later. But um, there was a, a, a in her situation, uh, there was a situation where um, it was going to become evident to the congregation that she um, this that she had sinned. Um, so it's become quote notorious. The rule is you make it public only so far as it needs to be public. We don't believe the church, remember in Presbyterianism is is being in a representative manner is what? When it says and bring them to the church, Matthew eighteen, who are we bring them to? The session. Now, the session will then, because we're representative government, we're not, it's not congregational government. So we're not bringing, we didn't bring her to the congregation because she came and confessed sin and etc. Um, what we did do is because there was a situation that was going to make it notorious, um, we then called a congregational meeting and we guided the congregation so that they would respond mercifully to the situation. And I remember very clearly leading that meeting and saying, now listen, this is something that's happened. Blank has confessed blank. Um, she has been, uh, the church, you know, she is in a season. I'm going to get to the second point in a minute. But I then was able to, I remember instructing, now listen, you know, the, the church is not the court of Jesus Christ. You, the, you, members are not part of the court of Jesus Christ. Members are not here. You know, your job is, as a fellow sibling, so to speak, I want to see a lot of hugs, a lot of kisses, a lot of real embrace, and this is a woman who has submitted herself to Christ, and she is an example for you to follow. 
and um, and it was a big hug fest afterwards. I remember, and there was just such a sweet spirit. Now, the other thing that came out that she's alluded to that I want to make sure you see is, um, so why would you suspend someone? When would you suspend someone? Well, suspension, as one of the, the verses say, admonition, or versus excommunication, is in a situation where it is believed that the person needs an opportunity to consider the, to the seriousness of the sin and particularly in a manner as to whether or not he or she has truly come of her own will. In a confession, is it something that's genuinely uh, a response to God's grace and, and, and desire for that grace and law, or is it something that was contrived? If there's something like in her situation where um, you could say, from a uh, uh, circumstantially, there was no her life, her situation was forcing. You could have said forced her to do it. In other words, it was a situation where she was quote caught if you will, by the circumstances. So the only reason the session went to suspension, because we rather, rather, very rarely would ever do that. The only reason is we wanted to give her the opportunity to have a, a season of prayer um, and a season of, of considering the, the seriousness of what she had done and, the, and the, the amazingness of the grace that God is presenting to her at the Lord's table. We wanted to give her an opportunity to do that because it all kind of happened pretty quickly. And we just said, let's just let her take some season here because we wanted her to experience the fullness of God's grace eventually when she was restored. And it was really something that she could come to the session and say, yeah, I've really thought about this. And I, this, these are the things that I'm... You know, that I've discovered about what I did about myself, and there's something meaningful, in other words, going on. So, so, so that gets you to the later on when we're getting to the type of censures, but that's generally the censure is almost all, with a case without process, it's almost always going to be admonition. Only if there was something that contrived it circumstantially would we ever even go to suspension. The other ex- example of a suspension would be, since we're talking about I'll just say it all now, would be if, if it was a process that someone, where someone is being corrected or rebuked or whatever, and they're recalcitrant, they're, they're not agreeing with you. They're saying, I don't, I don't care what you say, I, I'm still going to do it, or I want to do it anyway. Well, there we would suspend them. But in this case, it's a very different kind of suspension. What we're saying is, we're trying to up the warning. We're trying to say, listen, we want to give you a season for you to really contemplate the seriousness of this, because we're telling you that unless this thing is not repented of, it begins, it, it calls into question the sincerity, or we remember in our language the words, a credible profession of faith. That word credible is huge. <laughs> and we're saying it's calling into question the credibility of your confession of faith. And so a suspension is trying to give them a season to do that. But again, if you understand the, the way this really works, really, how long would that suspension go? It's, there's no such thing as an indefinite suspension because what you really says you excommunicate without a process. You see, so you can't do that. So it's a definite suspension, but it's typically a very good amount of time of, of, of time in that case. You're wanting them. I mean, in your case, it was relatively short because it was a different way of getting there. You know, in this other case I'm thinking about, it was relatively long because they were not there on their own free will. And it was a case that was brought against them and they were not quite there yet. And so we were saying, we're going to give you as much, we, we, we want to be as great. See, everything's driven by getting you to absolution. If that's your goal, to get them to absolution, it's going to change the way you do all this. 
If your goal is just to satisfy a checklist and say, aren't we good elders? We, 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 we do judgment around here. We do discipline around here. Then, that, then you're going to do it very differently. You're just going to try to get and satisfy all the, the goals. But we're trying to get them down to, con, you know, to confess. So we're going to give them a lot of time. So sometimes it, it could be a year. It could be more, whatever. But it could be a long time. Saying, look, we're going we're gonna to keep praying, keep holding on to you. You're still a member here. And we're waiting, baby. We're going to wait as long as we possibly can before, unless it starts to just kind of beg the question. And I can think of a situation that's before us right now that that um, has come to a conclusion. And it's been a two-year process of doing everything we knew to do to see this person come back. So we're not quick. Because we're, unless there's a reason to be quick, and you saw, and this is a great example, what we just did right here were two real case studies that I compared to you, and you see how if your go, if the focus is on getting them to absolution, getting them to the place where they experience the grace of the gospel, if that's your goal, it's gonna, it's gonna have a very different, um, practice if you've confessed your sin, and maybe there's a circumstance that, that, that at least needs to be a suspension versus if you are just not willing to repent. Over here, long suspension. Over here, relatively short suspension. But you see what? But the governing principle is always, always, always grace. Trying to find, get to that grace and doing everything you can do to get them there. So... This has been a good conversation. Uh, thank you for engaging it. Um, I want to. Um, we're at eleven fifteen. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna just do this because I'm gonna let you be the last and go home right after you. So give me. Can I give get, get about ten more minutes here? Are, are y'all tolerating that? Okay, ten more minutes of of this. I just want to point some things out. Um, notice the case without process, and it explains what that is. Then notice four procedural instructions for a case with process, and it explains what that is. Now, again, these are just the highlights. When you get into all the specifics, there's chapters, Chris, on stuff like cases and what it, you know. There's whole sections of that. I'm just kind of getting you things. So make sure you just kind of look at that. Um, um, so you have this uh, case without a process, procedural instructions for a case with process. Uh, the manner of inflicting church censures. Let's slow down there for a minute. Um, church censures and the modes of administering them should be suited to the nature of the offense. See, that's kind of what we've been talking about. For private offenses, censures should be administered in the presence of the court alone or in private by one or more members of the church. In the case of public offenses, the degree of censure and mode of administering it shall be within the discretion of the court, acting in accordance with paragraphs below which deal with particular censures. And um, and then what happens next is it goes through and it explains the different censures. Now, I keep reminding you, this is state, everything we're doing is all after stage one and two have been exhausted. Everything. Um, so we're just talking about that final informal stuff, and then that's broken into all sorts of stuff. And so you've got here uh, the center of admonition described, um, and when we do it. Uh, you have the, the, the uh, censure of indefinite suspension and why we do it. And then you have the censure of excommunication and why we do it. Um, then I go down and I back back up and I talk about, okay, now that you know where it's all going and what it can be, on page 8, I talk about the initiation of discipline. 
and again reminding us that it is the duty to investigate a rumor. Now, we, we would not do that. We always start with one person. Why? Because we're trying to de-escalate, not escalate. You get two people in the room, and it's pretty ominous. You get a whole court in the room, and everybody's scared to death. So, no. Hey, Billy Bob, Elder, how about going out to lunch with so-and-so and see if you can't see what's going on here. Just see how they're doing. It's really that, that first step. And stay there and don't come back to us until you have to. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um, so do you see the initiation process there. Uh, again, case without process mentioned. The review of available actions and discipline, we've already done that more or less. Um, let's see here. Oh, um, removal. So, so, there's, so then there's this issue of actions, and what I want to do here, we have, interestingly, and this is always a bit of an of a interesting caveat in our book of church order, there are those people who, for whatever reason, um, have left your church, have not joined another church within a year. Usually we give them about a year, and then we're starting to really work on it. Um, and they're just, or they've left the church because they're struggling in their faith. I'm thinking of a situation where they, they, they just, they're at this point don't know if they believe in it or not, or not you know, Christianity and all this stuff, or something like that. Um, uh, there is a there is a action, and, and to be honest, I just give it all to you there. Um, but the idea is that, on the one hand, we don't want artificial rules. We, want, we don't want to have the hypocrisy of people supposedly belonging to a church that aren't acting like they're belonging to a church or, or a professing faith. And so this is meant to be kind of a procedural process, uh, thing. You can see it in it. Um, but, it's, but it's basically, uh, we would remind them, as you see here in the spirit of 6.1, you know, how important participation in the church is. Da, 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 da. We're working with them to bring them back into this or some gospel-believing church. It's not this church per se. It could be any gospel. We just want you going to church. Okay? And if they don't, there is a point in which we can remove them from the role, but, but it, it gets into this gray area. There's been a lot of argument about this in the assembly. Is this an act of de facto of excommunication? Or what? Well, theologically, you're really saying you're excommunicated without process. Basically is what you're saying. So it is an act of discipline. It'll mention that. But it's removing them from the roles rather than excommunication, which usually brings with it this formal court process. So just kind of note that. And that's probably the most often used. I would say probably in this day and age, people who come and go. And, um, and you can see why we're, we're a little bit hesitant for people to join too quickly. Because we want to know that you really are a Christian. You, you, you kind of settled in. This is particularly true for, for someone who's converting or whatever. Um, and so, I don't know, you can read it, but that's what that is. And what we do then is uh, this is the kind of stuff that would come in a letter that we would write them and say, hey, let us remind you, first of all, why membership in a church is so important. You did take vows. You're breaking your vows by not going to a gospel-leading church. Um, so I, I put this there because it's a category that is... And this modern low churchism evangelicalism is increasingly before us. Where this could even be a Christian, so we're not quite wanting to say you're excommunicated, i.e., you're not a Christian anymore. But they've gotten into this spirituality where Starbucks with a friend is all they're doing. Where does that person fit in our ecclesiology? On the one hand, we're going to say out of which there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. Right? 
So membership in a church is to be a, a for real Christian. On the other hand, there's an ordinary clause there, ordinarily. And, we're, and this gets right into that ordinary. It says, okay, here's a person where we really aren't comfortable declaring them outside of the kingdom of God as a non-Christian. But this is a person who is not partaking of a church. So we call it removal from the rolls as an act of discipline. If you don't have questions about that, you're not thinking. But anyway, <laughs> that's what we got. <laughs> okay. Um, so just you'll see all that. And this is a nice little summary argument of why we think the church is essential that we'll provide for them. So this was taken right out of a letter, actually, that was written once for a situation. So some of these points, I should say. Um, another thing, the censure of admonition, we talk about it there, the censure of indefinite suspension and some more of the procedure. You'll see the language that we would use there. That's from Boko. Look at page 10. You know, in the context of indefinite suspension, it would say, where is you, Billy Bob? Here, describe the person as a teaching elder, ruling elder, deacon, or private member, blah, 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 are convicted by sufficient proof or are guilty by your own confession of the sin of blank here in church, the sense, we, the blank presbytery or church session, in the name by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, do now declare you suspended from the sacraments of the church and from the exercise of your office, in that case, until you give satisfactory evidence of repentance. And then to this shall be added such advice or admonition as may be judged necessary, and the whole shall be concluded with prayer to Almighty God, etc. That gives you the flavor of what's going to happen in the, in the situation where there's a suspension, for instance. Um, notice page 11. This is an actual case study, uh, obviously names being withheld, of a case without process in the, in the context of confessing adultery. Um, and this would be where uh, this would be in the records of the church. So I'm getting letting you see it in the records of the church, the, the church minutes, session minutes. Whereas, and then look where we started. Like I said, we will. Um, whereas, book of church order says, and it talks about their rights if they come forward as a person and confesses their sins. Here's our position of what that means. And whereas the confession of XYZ was made by him in the presence of the court are taken as a basis for judgment without process by this by his consent, and whereas a full statement of facts has been approved by the count, accused and by the court. See, everybody has to approve what we're saying here. Everybody agrees that we're saying the same thing. And whereas XYZ has in his own free volition confessed his sin of XYZ, we then move to a judgment. It is therefore resolved that XYZ be given the censure of admonition per voco. And we'd explain what admonition means. Quote voco on that. And then um, we would meet with... That's all what happens, you know, uh, in the sense of a, of a session minutes. And then we're going to take some of that and we're going to bring it into our meeting with that person. But this kind of gets to that meeting. And at the time of the meeting with the member... Um, it's recommended to hear his confession, so now we're going. I'm kind of going backwards. I should have put this first. Um, we then give the admonition, which I just showed you is in the minutes, and this is an example of how we would do that last little clause there. You see where it says, and then advise them. Where does it say that? To this shall be added such advice, etc., etc., etc. Over on page ten. Did you see that after the confession? That what I want you to see is now you see what we did in this case. We first of all, and we do all this in a very human way. I mean, this this we don't write all our language in our oohs and goos and hugs and kisses and our you know in minutes. So this looks like minutes and it feels like minutes. It doesn't feel like that in the actual situation. 
Um, but here's exactly what was 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 read. You know, we, we read these scriptures. You shall, you know, blank, you know that the scriptures teach that adultery is a sin. And we read scriptures to that effect just to remind them how serious it is or her. Whereas we see the consensus of our church is that out, uh, sex outside of marriage is a sin. We talk about that. So in other words, this is just our private opinion. This is actually the opinion of the Church of Jesus Christ for hundreds and thousands of years, literally. Um, and then we read some things there, and then we go to the actual censure, as I've mentioned. And then uh, what happens there is we lay hands uh, in prayer for the grace of Sabbath sanctification and continued assurance of God's love and grace under justification. So the, the person is there, hands are being laid on them for her, they are being prayed for. And then finally, there is a formal uh, a pronouncement of, of, of uh, absolution and full restoration of Christ in the church. So that's um, any. I'm going to stop right here and leave the rest to him after a, a conversation. I know I kind of flew through that, but I just thought, you know, this gets you into it. Um, I think you're assigned to read a part two of Book of Church Order, which is the Rules of Discipline. I would encourage you, if you haven't, to go back before next week or next time and just do a skim. I mean, it gets really obnoxiously detailed in some places. Uh, just do a skim. Because, uh, and, and just to, the very least to say, hey, I know that it's there. Oh yeah, somewhere it does talk about evidence. Somewhere it does talk about this. Somewhere it talks about that. At least you would have that in your sense, you know what I mean? Any questions? Yeah. I agree with you. We don't necessarily have to address that. Yeah, sure. The indefinite suspension of the table. I understood the removal of the roles thing as being the special case. How is the indefinite suspension different from excommunication for the Lord's... It should be definite. Did it say indefinite? It says the censure of indefinite. Uh, indefinite, yeah. What is that? God, there's something going on in my head that's not registering with that. Earlier you said it. It's always definite. Um, oh, no. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. I miscommunicated. I, I see where I'm saying wrong. Okay. What we do, practically, is we always give it a definite amount of time. So we follow up on it. Okay? Um, so we don't want it just to be sitting out there and we're just forgetting about a guy. <laughs> Kind of thing. So this, that was a practical statement. I, I really misspoke, so forgive me. By conviction, you can't have a definite suspension. Why? Indefinite. A definite. Indefinite. What would you be? What would you be doing in effect? You'd be putting a timetable on repentance. You'd be really declaring him excommunicated after six months. Um, that would be a statement of excommunication without the process. You see, so it's always an indefinite suspension, and the condition is repentance. But practically, we would say to a person like what we did with her, you know, we're, we're gonna we're gonna set it up to where it's uh, whatever, however months it was, or weeks, or whatever it was, I can't remember, and um, and then we're we're gonna have a meeting with you again and see where we are. So that that was I confused a practical um, uh, process in our session versus. The definition of suspension. So I don't know if that's, you're probably not asking. So what's the difference between that and excommunication? Um, indefinite suspension is, is awaiting the formal process of excommunication. It's, it's, a, it's a more pastoral way to try to bring someone. They're still, they still, though, have all the rights and privileges of the church. They're still a member. They still have the right to visitation. They still have a right to a Christian burial. They still have the right to, you can go right through the list. There's all sorts of rights and privileges that you have as a member of a, of a church. 
um, and you have all those rights, we have just indefinitely suspended you from the Lord's table. That moment in the in the service where it's meant to be uh, a, a, a declaration of, of assurance and absolution, that's not formally yet been declared that you are outside the kingdom of God. It's you are contemplating the meaning of this table and what it would be like not to have it. That's the purpose of it. But you have not yet had the... You have not your rights as a member of this church have not yet been fulfilled in terms of a formal process, prosecutor, the whole bit, so that all the stuff can come out the way it should and be reviewed. And you have not been declared outside the kingdom of God yet. That's a good question. Yeah. For the stages, so you have admonition, suspension, excommunication. That they're not necessarily followed in that order. Like there could be a case where it jumps excommunication because Total willful neglect, no repentance. Or, it just or jumps you, to it, you mean? It yeah, to that's it. correct. You can't. Yeah. I mean, it, if at all possible, we wouldn't. Right. But if the person comes in, but yeah, every one of the three censures are are open to the session upon hearing a confession, and they have to discern what the situation demands. Now, practically speaking, if your purpose is what to get them to absolution and, and restoration. Um, why would I go to excommunication first? The only reason I go to excommunication is if a person says, screw you, I'm out of here, you know, and I don't care anymore, and I don't want to be a part of this church, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And even then we might say we're going to give you an indefinite suspension before we, we probably would. We'd say, well, we're going to still, my guess is we'd still be slow to do it, even if they've told us to, you know, go somewhere. And we would say we're going to indefinitely suspend you and let you think about that for a while. Um, but yeah, and if, but yeah, that's good. Good clarification. Yep. Um, how do you draw the line between transferring membership and removing from the rolls? Yeah, that's a different. To transfer is a very different action than to remove from the rolls. Right. We're saying you're. Yeah. If I say I, I'm, you know, I, I need to go to a particular Baptist church. Yeah. Versus I'm going to the Mormon church. So. Oh, okay. Well, whenever you okay, so to. The distinction to remove someone from the roles of the church as an act of discipline, that whole phrase, it means that you're not attending and joining a gospel-believing church. Um, You're outside of the epicenter of the kingdom of God, so to speak. So then, certainly we would need to concern, we need to discern as to whether or not where you are going is a gospel-believing church. And again, we will, our session's policy, again, because of the gospel-centeredness, is to be as wide as the gospel is wide on that judgment. If it's, And we don't base a gospel-believing church on the practice of a particular regime or a particular administration. We look at their creeds. We look at what they believe. So, for instance, many would, would it's, a, it's a controversy within our tradition, especially in the older, tradition, uh, older segments of our tradition, um, to, so the sessions, I, I'm pretty sure in our, our, our denomination, each local session has, uh, the, the, the denomination has not ruled, for instance, on the status of a Roman Catholic church as a denomination. So every session has that ability to rule. And that rule is going to determine two things. It's going to determine, one, could you do what you're saying? Could, I, could we transfer them to a gospel-living church called the Roman Catholic Church on the Corner? It also involves whether or not we recognize their baptism or not. We never rec- the basis of recognizing a baptism is not um, uh, uh, did the person baptizing them uh, was he a Christian or something. 
I mean, this is the way evangelicals talk about this kind of stuff, but we don't do that, right? Your baptism is legitimate if it comes from a, of a, from a legitimate church, from a, 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 a true church. So when a session rules that say the Roman Catholic Church is a true church, what we're saying is, if you've been baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, we accept that as a valid baptism. And if you were to transfer your membership to the Roman Catholic Church, we would send you a letter of transfer. Now, we may caveat that with them personally and say, you know, is this really a healthy church? Is this really a five-mark church? Is this where your children are going to hear the gospel clearly proclaimed and all this other stuff? Or some of these doctrines, especially what I'd be most concerned about, ironically, would be the doctrine of, inspiration, of, of revelation. Um, I just, that, to me, that's the beginning of everything. And, um, you know, if, if, if you're going to a tradition where the rule of faith and practice is not contained to the scriptures only of the Old New Testament, I think you're putting yourself in harm's way. And any regime can, can go in different directions. So I'm always very concerned with that. But still, you know, like in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, we have ruled that it is a church. We've ruled that based on the ecumenical creeds. And we've ruled that insofar as uh, a predominance of its liturgy would still get you to the cross. Even if there's a, a, a priest who's totally wacko. And honestly, I would have, I mean, this sounds odd, I probably should say it, but I mean, when you look at the five marks of the church, there's different traditions that, that are just woefully inadequate in any one of those five marks. You know, and even with our own tradition, local churches within the PCA can be very weak on one of those or two of those five marks. So it's a different thing to say, here's my counsel, here's my advice, here's what I think is a good and healthy church for you to go to, from us to say, you are outside of the kingdom of God, which is to, to make them an anathema, as Roman Catholics did to those who... And so we, we don't want to respond in like kind to the Trentian Catholicism that excommunicated all Protestants from, their, from the Church of Jesus Christ. We don't think that was a right thing to do. We do believe in denominationalism. It's a good thing. It's a gracious thing. Uh, so, Because denominationalism is the way that we recognize you as a true church still, but just a different denomination. See, a lot of people hear anti-denominationalism, but denominationalism is an amazingly gracious thing. Because what's the alternative? If we, don't, if, we don't, if we don't proclaim you as a denomination of a church, what's the, what's, the, what's, what's the logical alternative? You're either a healthy, a, a church that we think is a fully healthy church because it holds the, all the marks of the church or you're not a church at all. And, the, and, the, and as you know, some of you, Vatican II has wiggled around this because now they're going to acknowledge non-church, they're going to acknowledge in a broader sense the kingdom of God so they'll recognize us as participating in the kingdom of God even though we're not a church. Um, and uh, you know, and and that's what the irony. You know, I, I, don't, I don't. Sometimes in our tradition, we pick on Roman Catholics way too much. There's so much about the Roman Catholic Church that I would prefer to broad evangelicalism, non-church church or parachurch church um, that doesn't do sacraments, that doesn't have discipline in government, that doesn't have so many things. Um, and so, be careful. You know, we 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 tend to in evangelical land to be very. Americana and our democratization, and we can we're real fuzzy with these sort of you know youth group looking churches that don't have a whole lot of means of grace in them. And you can go over here and have at least technically more means of grace. But then on the other hand, how does that get Trump with the fact that over here, at least you're hearing a genuine gospel centered gospel coming through the pulpit every Sunday, 
And over here, though, they may have many other of the means of grace in the church, the Roman Catholic Church will say, you're not hearing the gospel every Sunday. So we live in a really messy world. But at the end of the day, to the question, we're very, very uh, regulative as to how we pronounce a church a church or not. And we, we would use the most broad and gracious definition we can to include a church. So now the Mormons, whoever said that one? Was that you? Yeah, I don't know that we, I don't think we could declare that as a church. We've never had a situation where we had to rule on it. But personally, so I can't speak for the session. That hasn't been official, but I know I'd argue not to. <laughs> I don't think that's up to the session, would be my guess. That's what I mean. For the Mormons, has the PCA taken a stand on that? Yeah, I think it's, it's not a church. Well, I would, but by action of the General Assembly. If that's true, then we wouldn't have to. You're I'm right. I'm pretty sure. I, have, yeah. I don't remember seeing yeah. it, but yeah. through my ordination process, yeah. it came up. Okay, good. For this Whitmer discussion, everyone should have a separate handout. A separate handout that says discussion on the shepherd leader, Timothy Whitmer at the top. It's uh, it's backed by the other handouts. If somebody wants to grab some extras back there by the... It's a single page. It's good, Thank you, Peggy. Thank you for whoever You're welcome. It's like really It was back down to 61. So turn it turn it back up. All right, let's get let's get going. Let's get going. We're looking at chapter four and chapter five of the Whitmer book. I'm going to be assuming that you've read it, and I also am hoping to get to some uh, a lot of time of discussion, smarter discussion, because uh, we are going to be turning to more practical, more personal issues, what this stuff really means, and we've been hit with a lot of awesome uh, information and theory, and he's getting down to some nuts and bolts. Um, so, first page is chapter four, and we'll... Let's, I couldn't decide to then break for discussion then, and then do the back, and then break for discussion again. Um, let's let's do that. But I want to blow through this pretty quickly. Some of this is review. Um, but he starts off, shepherd's biblical right to lead. A few words about authority. Obstacles. A lot of these obstacles we've already mentioned, pretty clear to us, I think, why our culture... Um, denies, repudiates authority in all sorts of ways uh, because of the triumph of the individual. Um, Churches like to pander to the spirit of the age. And number three there, and the spirit of the age now is tolerance at all costs. Um, And he talks about also timid, cowardly, expedient Christians. Um, I think a lot of that's not new. Another great quote from Chesterton, though. I mean, you can always find a good quote by Chesterton on anything. Um, people who throw out all authority are like men who should attack the police without ever having heard of burglars. And a lot of this is, also, is throwing out the baby out with the bathwater. 
which is not something we want to do. So then he looks at five main um, rights and responsibilities of biblical authority. Some of this, again, is going to be review, but just to make sure we're on the same page. First, all human authority is derived. And notice he says all, not just church. But he's also... um, So the, the two important phrases there, all and then derived. Um, because it's all meant to be the Lord's authority at the end of the day. Purpose of the authority is for the well-being of those under it, as we heard over and over in such in so many powerful ways. It's all meant to bring us back to grace, that we would experience grace just as Christ came not to be served, but to serve. All authority is directed by God's Word. We're going to come to an example of that in a second. Um, but this gets back to the extent and limits of the authority. And it's really making sure that we we don't really want to obey anyone else because they say it. We want to obey God. We ultimately are hoping to obey God and bring others to obedience to the Lord. And if it's guarded by God's word, we can ensure that we're doing that. Um, similar justification under number four. Officers are ultimately accountable to the one who gives them authority. Um, if you think back to Kevin's first question, why is the glory of God the priority? Why is that important? Um, even though we, it's for the good of the people in the church, we're ultimately not accountable to them. We're accountable to God. That's really important. And that's going to, um, although hard, a lot of the time. And then the flock is called to submit to them. So this again, in a gospel-centered way, if, you're, if your church is saturated with the gospel, then there's a spirit of humility, submission, obedience, all for the sake of the glory of God. Um, and then he, he, I thought, pretty helpfully showed how in Christian traditions of, of recent times, they have fallen into two extremes. So let's look at these two extremes, and then we can have some discussion. Okay, um, A good quote that summarizes uh, what each extreme does. Authority without compassion leads to harsh authoritarianism. Compassion without authority leads to social chaos. And I wanted to point out, if you have a book, you can look at it. If not, um, he talked about the shepherding movement, which apparently came out of uh, a lot of the Jesus movement. And they were, they were seeing how there's so little discipline um, that they started to enact all sorts of discipline. But I want us to be very clear and careful in understanding where this movement went wrong, went overboard. So we say this is an extreme of when they lorded it over or when they, when they went beyond the limit of church authority. Well, where did they do that? This is where I want to be clear. So on pages 94 and 95, he sort of starts to break it down and say, so let's see, um, they wanted to fulfill their commitments as believers. So you had elders, then you had house group leaders who were accountable to elders. And he says, so far, so good. Then they introduced something called covering. Covering means that a church member must have any important decision, sometimes less important one, covered or approved by their house group leader, elder, or pastor. And he says, again, this sounds innocent enough until the extent of the covering in some context is seen. Examples of decisions for covering by an elder or more mature Christian are moving home, employment, marriage, even employment with a doctor. But notice, it's not the fact that they're discussing those issues that's the problem. 
because we should absolutely be seeking counsel for every decision that we're having all the time and within reason. Right? If you're thinking about marriage, you're thinking about moving, you're thinking about jobs, you should be seeking counsel from one another, from elders. But what's the problem? This is in the next chapter, I mean the next paragraph. The difference, the second sentence, however, the difference is that such input was not merely recommended, but required by church leadership and was binding upon the church member. In some cases, the council of the elder elders was given the revelational weight of prophetic utterance. So a lot of this came out of charismatic churches. Um, and so they're going beyond the revealed will of God. And then you see how very easily this leads to a sort of cult-like control. Of, I'm going to control. The church is going to end up controlling every little decision in people's lives. Um, even if the even if in each instance the the officers are making the right decision, like the most wise decision, if you will, it's still an overstepping of the bounds. That makes sense? Because they're giving it not as advice or counsel, they're giving it as a word of the Lord, which they can't give. So I had I had someone who I was counseling, um, and, and I was I was suggesting that they do one thing as far as what, what does repentance mean in this person's situation, and they disagreed very strongly, but they said, but if you say it, you know, I don't want to get kicked out of this church, I guess I'll do it. And I was like, whoa, 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 do not hear what I'm saying under that rubric. I am not saying, as if I am the session of CBC, this is a ruling. Right? It's, it's counsel. It's advice. And it's still within the limits of church discipline, just as we saw so many things are. Preaching, small groups, all sorts of stuff, catechism. So it is within the realm of discipline, but it's not within the realm of this binding their conscience. So they won't be on, they won't be on the limits, uh, is this example. The other extreme is the exact opposite, and this is where Whitmer started talking about the emerging church movement. Um, and again, a lot of it came out of, I think, Good instincts. They're they're aware of dangers and risks. The problem is they again threw the baby out with the bathwater and said hierarchy not only can be bad but always is bad. It inevitably leads. And not only is it not true, it also denies a lot of the scripture we've been looking at that talks about officers and um, authority figures. And he also points out how they still were led to a sort of hierarchy, even though they didn't want to say it. They, they tried to have leaders that were based on trust or recognition. And you can see how ultimately the authority then just resides in the people, popularity, who's going to be most popular or most trusted. <coughs> you have to ask, well, who's doing the trusting? Who's recognizing these leaders? Um, all those sorts of questions. So... Um, any questions before we break up? So we have obstacles in the culture, then we have what biblical authority is calling uh, the church to do, and avoiding two extremes. Were the two extremes helpful? Does anybody want clarification or maybe another another point? 
Well, he called it, maybe someone else who is more familiar with this, he, the shepherding movement was where they went out, but he said the shepherding movement drew came out of the Jesus movement, which I think, in my mind, I read it as there were a lot of hippies who were new Christians who didn't have any authority, and so the shepherding movement jumped to the other extreme with too much of it. trying to preserve that the word is sufficient and I'm not going to speak when I can't speak from the word in your official role. Of course, you can give all sorts of counsel. So I counsel, obviously, in college ministry, you're counseling on dating and sexual stuff all the time. But I I try to be very deliberate in saying, this is wise, this is a line you can't cross. It's a command of the Lord. Peggy? I think it's fine. Okay. All right. Discussion questions at the bottom of that page, and then we'll come back. If you got to question four, I'd be curious, uh, just very quickly, uh, what were some things that were shared in question four? If given authority, what do you think you would find difficult in exercising it? Or any, any thoughts to that? Anybody get to that? There will be times when you're going to be unpopular. You're not going to be Being like, unpopular. You're Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You're going to hurt people. Yeah. Confrontation. Confrontation. But I think that uh, the thing that would be difficult for me is just knowing that there's a time where I don't have to control things. You know, like mm. I, I tend to at, at work. I'm kind of like the number two guy. Okay. And I get really stressed out and really angry when people don't do things my way. Okay. It's the right way. Okay. Yeah. It's good to know. You know that, that, that's a difficult thing for me. Absolutely. You know, people just do stupid, impractical sort of things. They right. just don't get it. Right. So if given authority, it's important that you're given limited authority. It's not only derived, it's limited. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that uh, I think I have at times a false humility, and you see this, I think, in a lot of different Christians, where you don't want to bring any attention to yourself, you don't want to speak out too much, blah blah blah, but in a way that can deny the power or the wisdom that Christ has given you. So you don't want to deny the way that God is working through you by some sort of false humility. You don't want to draw too much attention to yourself. That was one thing that came to mind for me in in number four. Um, All right, let's move on uh, to the back side. And part two, he he started off basically by introducing these two main categories, macro-shepherding and micro-shepherding which are relatively self-explanatory. Macro is the big stuff, corporate, congregational, and micro is the personal uh, personal care interaction, personal ministry. One important thing is you've got to have both. His, his thought, I don't know if this is true for, for us as much, but he, he mentioned that a lot of 
elders or aspiring elders like the macro stuff. They think they're good at the macro stuff and want to do the macro stuff, but they don't want to or prize the micro stuff. But his point is that we have to have both. I wanted to, before we get on, move on, I wanted to read from Acts 20. This is, this is really an amazing, amazing passage in Scripture. Uh, Acts 20 starts in verse 17 to 38. This is Paul's farewell address to the elders in Ephesians. And I want you to listen. Not only he gives a lot of amazing principles that Whitmer brings up uh, about what an elder is and what he is to do, but also just the, the personal connection that even an apostle had uh, and the community that must have been behind these words. Um, so verses 17 to 38. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I just lost the place there. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But, listen to this verse, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. I would encourage you to go back uh, on your own time and read it. Um, Anything jump out on first hearing? Anything you want to share? You mentioned with tears twice. Didn't shirk. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Thinking about the responsibility, we like to receive authority, but not the responsibility. But and even in the sense that he's saying he's innocent of their blood, he's he's taking care of his responsibility. But also being so connected that he would do it with tears night and day from house to house. So usually we have one or the other, but we see both here. And uh, fierce wolves will come. Yeah, That's even right. from among you. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Be alert. Yeah. It is an amazing passage. Um, all right, so chapter 5. We can, I think we can do this pretty quickly. Um, he, he just expanded on what he meant by macro-knowing and micro-knowing. He's going to go through each, each chapter from here, changes the word there. Shepherds know the sheep, and then he's going to do a few others. I forget what else. Feed the sheep, maybe, or groom the sheep. No, protect the sheep, shear the sheep. Um, yeah, why not? Um, so macro knowing, so big picture, you know, which sheep are you over? Where are they if they're limited by geographics or demographics? Uh, parameters, the membership role, um, discerning the credible profession of faith, the issue of the keys came up that we've talked about in the past, the issue that um, they are overseeing the ministry of the word and sacraments and discipline. Um, the elders don't make sheep, but it's through the elders that the sheep are identified, acknowledged, and admitted. Um, we don't want to have a scattered flock without accountability or security. I feel like a lot of that is review, a lot of this is review, so I'm not going to um, spend a lot of time on it. And then micro knowing: every member should have a personal connection with at least one elder. They must know that they are known, cared for, loved, and counted. And he also asked about what about the really big churches, and he gave the example of 10th Pres in Philadelphia that I think at the time he said they had 1,400 members. And just the commitment, even though they realized they weren't perfect, the commitment to have all of those members still connected in a very tangible, personal way um, to an elder. And I think they had something like some sort of leader underneath the elders. Is that right? I forget exactly. Um, some of these aspects of micro-knowing he pulled right out of the Acts 20 passage. Um, the inspection, so being intimately familiar enough with your flock that you can know what's going on. You can inspect them. You visibly care by being available, being present. Um, you can just say that you care or show up for the big decisions. Um, you're able to diagnose in a personal way. Um, and, and he's got quotes from Baxter on the importance of conversion. After this, we must labor with all our might, uh, especially thinking of non-communicant children and, and preaching the gospel to them. And uh, regular dedicated contact as far as visiting homes. And he talked about in the modern world how it's harder um, to really get to everyone's home, but at least a telephone call um, is about, even better than an email. Why don't we just, just a couple more minutes just discuss... Any of these, any questions you have, and, and how you've experienced this or you would like to experience it more? Um, do you feel like you have personal connections with elders or people under you? Um, macro, micro, what do you prefer? What do you resist? Peggy? When I had talks 
situations, I, you know, I just call my elder and just say, mm. can't you just pray with me? Mm. Sometimes I don't even know how to pray. It can be hard. Mm. And so it's just like just sharing this hurt or mm. whatever, you know, just through the years to just mm. be able to have somebody that knows me. Yeah. Um, despite of myself, and, yeah. and uh, that will pray with me. Mm. Um, so I, I find phone calls extremely effective. Mm. Um, emails, not so much, because emails still, there's just, there's a miscommunication sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. not intentional, but it's just so easy. Yeah. I think they're effective, especially if you need to give, like, you know, one, two, three, four. But the, um, you know, there's just, uh, but it is amazing how effective um, sure. phone calls out. Sure. Um, well, most everyone here probably knows by now that I'm the Passover adult. And I'm actually new to the Presbyterian, even though I've been reformed for quite a while. So I'm not so uh, quite familiar with all of the, the idiomatic statements that go with our, our confession. However, um, my experience with elders has been that they... They tend to be the fence around the pastor or pastoral team huh. rather than the fence around the congregation. Huh. And so the congregation knows them less huh. in, in, in too many churches. Huh. I, I, I don't, this is not a judgment on this church because right. I'm not familiar with, with everybody that's in the session. I learned some of them. Right. But I thought that was an interesting quote and if there was an intentionality right. among us to make that happen. Right. You know, right. because if that if that's what we're being trained to do, whether ladies or men, I understand. But if that were, then we need to be understanding that from this moment forward, when we finally get to that role, it is an intentional thing that I'm going to be actually known mm-hmm. by part of the sheep, if you know, mm-hmm. that deserve me as part of their fence, their protection, their space, mm-hmm. um, rather than me being there to support pastoral staff, right, right. you know, and I think that's, that's how a lot of people actually see eldership hmm. uh, too many times. It's a, it's a posse they, right, that the they, pastor they travels with, this, well, entourage. The pastor wants and all the elders are arguing for right, it, then right. that it's, because that, that's their role, rather than right. seeing it, because Paul seems to be saying that the elders are protecting the flock, and, and yeah. when they fail, right. they're heretical. Right. You know, I mean, they're the What's interesting, just a little sideline, the, the church of Ephesus is mentioned more throughout the New Testament all the way through Revelation than any huh. other church. So is that right? Huh. It becomes a model of wow. what can go wrong, what shouldn't go wrong. Wow. So I, I thought that was an interesting comment that yeah. you quoted there. Huh. And, I, and you use the word deserve, that the fuck deserves the elders. I think that's the right word because there, it is not a matter of the rights of the people of God in the church have the right to an elder, to an overseer. Uh, and that includes being known, cared for, loved. Um, and I also thought of the comment that was made earlier about if the culture is so gospel-centered, if it's so saturated, then the presence of an elder would increase safety, increase grace, increase wanting to be known and, and know the elder, not the opposite. Um, any, any parting thoughts? Yeah, please. Uh, um, when it talks about um, must, that micro and, and macro should both be in the shop. I'm not sure that's totally possible. It's nice if you have that in your church. 
your head pastor maybe is the macro and those under it may be the micros as it goes down. Because yeah, but I, I, some I think we. are just gifted in different areas. Sure, sure. And time is a constraint and all those right. things. But, I mean, he does make the point straight up that you can't do macro well without doing micro to some extent. Well, that's true. Yeah, so, so just being sort of a traveling preacher uh, in some of these big churches where you don't actually know the congregation and their needs is a big detriment, I think. I think it also says that you need enough elders. Yeah, absolutely. You know, depending on the size of your church, you should have more elders. Right. Absolutely. Lisa? I know that um, it has been such a blessing to have the elders these last 22 years in our life just for our children to see <coughs> the friendships among the elders, hmm. their full personhood. They're not afraid to be around them because they've seen them hmm. throw a football with them in the yard. They've seen them be there for them. Come <coughs> That's the point that, you know, when our children, and I speak for the whole church, go wayward, if they do, yeah. some might not, um, then they can come to the hmm. session. Yeah. They can ask for forgiveness. Yeah. <coughs> It's usually either crisis or a financial need that you hear from your elder. Uh, so that that's a very sad model. Sorry. I think, based on what you're saying, I think we need published somewhere what elders cover what areas. Mm. Because yeah. I we're now in the shoreline. Put that in the survey that was just sent out. Well, I will. <laughs> but not yeah. everybody knows who their elder right. is. Right. And so, um, and they're not a part of the well, Right, because many are not part of that system. have access to elders in different ways, but right. it's, I would say it's not equal across the board. Right, absolutely. How, how is it structured here? Through the community groups. The community groups that you're in that are by geography. All so you're sh- are you shoreline? So, so, so only people that are in community groups then are yep. And yep. And if you're a member, you are at least assigned to a community group, even if you never go. You're at least you're still assigned to that community group, and that's where the mercy needs to begin. Uh, and that's how mercy's meted out, and also how your elders assigned. Okay. Thank you. 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 Th
You're under an Eleanor if you don't know. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. No, You're welcome. Do you have his name? <laughs> <laughs> it's Alan? All right, yeah. And, and, and how that communication goes up and down. Which communication? There's accountability and so forth. Well, all of the elders would be, would be in touch with each other and pastors. Is that what you mean? We, we were in a church, and they had uh, home groups here, Bible study, and, yeah. and, and so forth. And the leaders of those groups met with the senior pastor oh, every other month or yeah. something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And there was an, uh, a meeting where exchange information, not about individuals, but just the, the, what was going right. on. And there was kind of a chain yep. uh, in their training involved and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of uh, stuff. That's, yeah. that's kind of what I was wondering. Yeah, very similar, I would say. And, and Mercy is a good picture of that. So if, if someone's having a baby, then usually the community group provides needs around that immediately. And then if the need becomes bigger than what the community group can handle, then they, they go up the chain, if you will, right. to the larger church. And so it would be the same for accountability or there's some major issue going on. All right. I'm four minutes over time, but it's not my fault. <laughs> Joanne? Um, one last card. On, um, the importance of visitation, again, even though, again, that was a big group and it's very hard to get everybody uh, met with. Um, Alan's come to my house and met with my husband, even. So it even goes, my husband's not yet a believer, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> so it even goes beyond this church. So I just want to say, you know, I thank the church for that and for the attention. Absolutely. And, I mean, I know pastors and elders don't just want to wait till a crisis to, to hear from you and to hear from the congregants. So those phone calls are a pleasure in a lot of ways. Like we want, I want to have those meetings. But don't feel bad if it is a crisis, because sometimes a piano falls out of the sky and hits you on the head. And so it wasn't, you didn't see it. Then you have bigger problems if that happens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You have different relationships. Yeah. All right. It's, uh, it's beautiful outside. Dave Taylor wants to go out. Let's, uh, let me close in prayer, if you don't mind. Father, you are our uh, chief shepherd, and we are, we are a flock that often goes wayward, that um, is so undeserving of your grace, but we praise you for uh, the immensity of it. You are the one true and living God, and you have revealed yourself in Christ. So we do pray that our church would become more and more um, made into his image, that this body would be saturated with your gospel, um, that people would feel safe to confess sins and to uh, really be drawn to the grace of you. And uh, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.